Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. The end is near. Makes me faint. Colors of destruction are vivid like paint. Do you think it's true? Will the world be destroyed? Or is that girl just paranoid? I never thought Godzilla'd make us cry. Is it really him or something else in disguise? I knew it. It's aliens trying to take over. The reality is making my drunk ass sober. You're not Godzilla, just a big fat phony. Came to Earth with your alien cronies. Broke my jaw. Kicked me in the balls. Had no choice but to make a call. Versus the cosmic monster, um, and then we've got Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner, <laughs> and uh, then we've got uh, and this is the first city showing for Night of the Damned. Now, if you're wondering What's what that? Night of the Damned is, that was a re-release title for Messiah of Evil. Um, so. Cosmic Monster, 1977 re-release for the U.S., a few years after its original Japanese release. Kingdom of the Spiders uh, has just come out. Uh, it is going to be... It's, it's kind of late in the season, although it's August, here where we're starting out in 2021. When we get there, it's actually going to be early November 1977, so... Uh, I wearing shorts. I'm kind of hoping it's well, gonna, not going to be too cool. No, Oklahoma, it's... That's it'll true. Be, it depends. Uh, I mean, I've been outside playing in shorts on Christmas Day. You know, I guess we'll wait and see, yeah. but... With our optimism, it, our it's going to be nice. Yes, absolutely. So, here's a little uh, something about the Skyview Drive-In. Opened in 1948. Um, closed in 1983, so it's still had about five years left in it before it finally... Uh, closed up shop. Um, now, the cool thing is, is that in 2021, you can still kind of see where the theater was. Uh, Mother Nature's reclaimed most of it, but there's a church on the corner of the lot, and supposedly behind the church, there's some of the old speaker poles are still there. Um, no speakers on them anymore, but they were kept there as just kind of a homage to the past. And when you do a sky view using, you know, Google Earth, you can see the uh, where the where the screen was at one time, and, and the rows 
of where the cars were, trees have gone, have grown now in a kind of like a semicircle. So uh, you can kind of see the, the old uh, image of where the drive-in would have been. So kind of cool. Mother Nature's just reclaimed it, but we're going to be going to it when it was still in its, I don't know, prime, but it's going to still be open and a great triple feature. I mean, we got Godzilla and we've got Captain Kirk. What more do you need? And the third film is just going to be the icing on the cake. I have seen all three of these movies. It's been a long time since I've seen Messiah of Evil. Um, and I don't care how many times I see Kingdom of the Spiders. It's still a fun flick. And come on, Godzilla. Whether he's fighting the bionic monster or the cosmic monster or Mecha Godzilla, that's it's classic. Classic Godzilla. Yeah, it's kind of appropriate there's a church sitting on the corner because that is drive-ins are definitely holy ground. And uh, yeah, uh, I think yeah. it's, that says something the, the way it has evolved and you can still see the speakers and the, Absolutely. the trees yeah. and everything. That's just awesome. Well, and we have our lucky shirts on. You know, I, I've got my lucky Pink Floyd shirt on that we've been wearing now for three drive-ins in a row. So hopefully, maybe third time's a charm. Maybe it won't be raining when we get there. But if it is, it's cool. Because It'll you stop. know what? It stopped. It's like it's yep. done the last two months. It'll stop this time. Yep, yep. So you've seen all these movies before. Uh, I have not. Oh, yes, I have too. But it's been a long time for Godzilla. But I just want to say Messiah of Evil is a recent watch of mine. And I love that movie. So... Uh, that's one of those rare ones that I watch on Amazon or something like that, and I like it so much I immediately order the Blu-ray. So, can't wait to talk about that. That's a very interesting movie. I don't have the movie in my personal collection, but I have seen it. It's been a while. It does pop up with uh, semi-regularity on uh, the Film Detective channel. Uh, it's part of their library because it's like technically kind of sort of public domain it, it's one of that gray area and uh you know kingdom of the spiders and uh godzilla uh, have both been given uh, nice blu-ray releases so um and i've got both of them in my collection so yeah. gonna be fun fun yeah. night at the drive-in did we tell everyone who we are no, nobody yeah, has a clue. You know, this is just a, obligatory because you, of course, know who we are. And I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. I'm Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. Yes, and I run a transportation time travel business on the side when I have time. Uh, of course, using it for ourselves whenever I can. Yes, the uh, the Wayback Machine is fired up. We're going to be going through the portal and traveling back to 1977. And you know what? Uh, you never know who you're going to find at the drive-in. We've been having some guests all summer long. And who knew? Uh, well, who knew like, that like-minded monster like kids. Well, of course, you monster know, kids. We shouldn't be surprised. They, where there's a will, there's a way. And uh, you never know. Maybe we'll run into somebody else in this episode. I bet we do. I bet we do. <laughs> All right, let's strap ourselves in. We got our seatbelts on, but we're getting ready to make that jump, and we will see you all when we get there. See you at the movies. <laughs> and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. Did you fail to dress up for tonight's show? 
No tie, an old shirt and slacks, a house dress? Well, don't give it a thought. We're glad you came as you are. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. Don't forget to visit our refreshment center during the intermission or any time. You love the tasty array of snacks we have to offer. So will the youngsters. Everything is quality and mm, so good. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. Bring the family. Bring your friends. There are always wonderful new pictures to see, delightful snacks to nibble, a gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Don't drive over 10 miles an hour in the theater area for your safety's sake. And mom or pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Come back soon. starts in four minutes. It's refreshment time, folks. Time out for a delicious snack in our sparkling refreshment building. Every item a fresh, appetizing taste treat. We've a large assortment of freshly made sandwiches. How about a pizza? None better anywhere. Sizzling hamburgers grilled to your taste. Mouth-watering chili dillies. A bionic monster, a menacing giant, an awesome machine, unleashed with a deadly task. Godzilla, the only hope for Earth's survival. Godzilla versus the bionic monster. Godzilla strives to win supremacy in a fight to the end. Will Godzilla triumph? Do you survive? Godzilla versus the bionic monster an Earth-shaking movie. Rated G. Oh, who's that? Guys, hey. Jonathan, what are you doing here? It's Godzilla. It's Mecha Godzilla. Why wouldn't I be here? You know, uh, you're, you know you're right. We're always surprised <laughs> who we run into, but then you stop to think about it. Of course. Of course I'm you're here. It out, even if I have to travel, you know, in time and space. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, are you are you solo tonight or do you bring the girls? I'm solo for now. Okay. You know, they had some errands to run. They may come down to the drive and join us. Okay. But, you know, yeah. They're 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 busy, you know, they're ladies about town, you know. So, yeah. 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 Well, how are you? What's new? 
Oh God, just work, working like crazy. Um, we have our big conference coming up the end of August. So I'll be really happy when that's over. Stella's about to turn three oh, uh, at the end of the month, which is hard to fathom. Hard to fathom. It really is. But yeah, just keeping super busy and um, just very excited to have a break. Jump into some some uh, kaiju action. Because, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm so glad you could join us. Uh, yeah, tell, tell Stella that her future boyfriend, uh, Jensen. Oh, right. Her- yes. It's- He's turning one on on the uh, the nineteenth already. So you know, does he like older women? <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't know. We haven't had that heart to heart talk yet. He's he's kind of skipped the crawling stage. He's he's already walked his first few steps. Which, really? Which seems crazy. Yeah. He oh he's pulls himself up and stands and he's actually yeah made a few steps on his own before he fell down. But he never crawled. He did this. Lieutenant Dan Forrest Gump <laughs> crawl where like the lower half of his body was, you know, paralyzed, but boy, those front arms would pull him <laughs> along really super quick. But, uh, yeah. So to sir, you know, tell her that, Hey, he's, he's almost ready to walk and uh, <laughs> they'll be headed to the drive-in soon. I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh. You know, and they can, they can work on the age difference, you know, over time, it's not really that big a deal. You know, I'm sure they're yeah, they yeah. possibilities here, you know, <laughs> So you're our Godzilla expert. I mean, I'm going to read a couple of little credits here, and that's the extent of my knowledge on this particular movie. So we're really counting on you to fill in the gaps. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla was released in Japan, March 21st, 1974. Uh, In the States, it wasn't actually released until three years later, March 77. So earlier this year, it came out because it's it's November, right? Yeah. Made, of course, by Toho. Distributed in the States by Cinema Shares International. And then next year, I can see into the future, it's going to be distributed, re- released by Downtown Distribution Company. Mm. Uh, written by, do, do you want to take the honors, Jonathan? You seem to say the names better than I can. Hiroyasu? Let's Yamamura? See. Was this Yamamura or Sekizawa? I'm trying to remember. This is Yamamura. Oh, oh Yamamura. Okay. Yeah. And directed, I think I can do that one, Jun Fukata. June Fukuda, yes. He's uh, his last one uh, for Toe, at least for Godzilla movies. I know, and I I understand that he did not enjoy film doing these movies. I think he preferred doing, this is what, and I've read this in several places. He did like spy thrillers and action movies. And you can see that in this movie has some of that with the Interpol and all that. But yeah, this was his last turn and probably his, probably his best. Although, you know, I know we were talking, um, you know, we've talked before about some of his other efforts, like, you know, Godzilla versus the sea monster and um, Megalon. And yeah, this is his last, this is his uh, swan song. So between him and, and I think it's Masaru Sato, the composer, I think it, it's his last effort as well for the Godzilla series. Um, A couple of other writers, I was curious if you know who they were too, because there's Masami Fukushima. Uh, looks like he also wrote Matango. Oh, yes. Yep. Which yep. is a crazy movie, which I love. That I love Matango. Oh, Matango's great. Yeah, that and that's a, that's a film that I didn't I didn't discover that until much later. Uh, I do not remember that. I saw everything that was available, you know, when it came to Toho and kaiju films, uh, you know, growing up. But there's certain there was there are certain omissions that are very strange, uh, and that's one of them. Matango. I don't remember that being in playing in our local channel, you know, I was in the, in the New York. See, that was one thing growing up. We didn't have a UHF station until we got cable. So it was like the only Godzilla movie that I remember playing on television at all was uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. 
Mm, yeah. Um, watched it on a Sunday afternoon, I remember, on Channel 12. But beyond that, we never got any until, and I didn't see most of those until VHS, when I started watching them on VHS. So the there's ones- another writer, Sh- Shinichi... Sekizawa. Yeah, like he, yeah, he was prominent. He wrote, he was prolific for Toho going way back. He might've gone back to Mothra, but he yeah. goes, you'll see his name. I've heard it described that his scripts are mostly on the more kind of upbeat and positive and kind of, uh, I don't know what the best word is. The tone is a little lighter as opposed to, uh, I think his name, the last name is uh, Shimura. Takashi Shimura, I believe his his scores, uh, his screenplays were a lot dark. He did the scores for a lot of the darker films. Um, so, but yeah, Sekizawa is definitely prolific for Toho. Um, yeah, it looked like he, his credits were just so long. Yeah. Mothra, I saw, and yeah. Baran, and Atragon, and Invasion of the Astro Monster, and it just kind of went yeah. on and on and on. Yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I don't want you to think I'm totally unprepared. I do have a little research. This is. Oh, yeah. Famous Monsters of Filmland, number 135. Beautiful cover of Godzilla versus the Bionic Monster, which was another name for that. Yep, yep. And I'm sure you guys can explain that, and I want you to. But I also want to point out the accuracy of this article. It refers to the uh, kaiju in this as King Seesaw. Wait. Like seesaw, like seesaw, like teeter totter seesaw. Yes. What? Really? I that I've never seen. Um, so I don't know if that was lost in translation or if it was Corey oh, Ackerman trying to be funny. I don't know, but I think it had to have been lost in translation, right? Because, that would be my guess. That because yeah. it was um, based on the the seesaw lion dog guardian statues in Okinawa. Mm-hmm. And that's it was spelled S H I S A. So I'm wondering if it was one of those Godzilla Gojira translation things where they went with one as like, well, she saw sounds like seesaw, or maybe if they heard it that way and just wrote it. Yeah, I'm sure things like that happen all the time because that's unless, like you said, he's being cute. But I, yeah, I have to imagine it's probably uh, nowadays. Like I think people would would be a lot more knowledgeable back then famous monsters was you know they they provided a lot of information but they had limited resources sometimes right right, to, right. To what they could what yeah they could. and it's not really an article it's just one of their recaps of the movie the plot from right, beginning. Right. there's no really news or information on that oh, richard sorry. you're probably best to equip equipped to tell us why uh, we didn't see it as godzilla versus the bionic monster yeah, you know, and I have memories of of seeing it advertised as the Bionic Monster on television. I I, I remember, and and Jonathan, maybe may or Jeff, either one of you guys, do you remember NBC playing? And I think it was Godzilla versus Megalon, like prime time. Yep. Okay, and they were advertising Godzilla versus the bionic monster as, as coming out, you know, or coming soon. I think that NBC was going to do this deal where they were going to play Godzilla movies in prime time. Uh, and I think even like John Belushi hosted, if I've read. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal. I mean, never has a movie like, especially a Godzilla movie uh, gotten that kind of uh, publicity. They went all out apparently in the, I guess, well, 
it came out in 73, but I think this was 76, I believe, when they, John Belushi dressed up like Godzilla and he appears in some kind of commercial on SNL, I believe. And yeah, they did a full on, you know, publicity push and it did well. I mean, the, you know, surprisingly for a movie that's, you know, also derided by certain fans. I mean, I love it. I love Godzilla vs. Megalon. They probably paid more in publicity with, you know, John Belushi and whatever they did um, in the States than they did. I mean, I think the film was shot six days and very super, super low budget, but it worked. I think it was a commercial success, but I don't know a lot of the details or how, like what led up to that? How did that actually happen? Uh, Yeah. And it's like, People, everything I found online is like there's doesn't seem to be any footage of it. They think that there's some footage, like I guess in, a, in an NBC vault somewhere, but yeah, nothing, none of the John Belushi or television stuffs popped up on YouTube or anywhere like that. So. There are some stills. I think there's one or there are one or two stills, but I don't think um, any full video or anything like that. Yeah, I, I know it. I would love to see it, but oh yeah, you know it's got to exist somewhere. But keeping in mind too mid 70s not everyone had vcrs back then so anything that we do have from that time period is a bit rare but yeah so godzilla versus the bionic monster was promoted well that didn't go over too well with with the folks over at universal because clearly they were trying to capitalize on the six million dollar man the bionic woman which 76 you know 77 that was the shows were still going strong you know they weren't quite at their end yet they were they were still uh, really hot in the ratings, especially 76, 77 season. That was, you know, six million dollar man about a woman. They were battling the fembots. They were battling Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, I remember it. Yep. Yeah. So they had, that's where they had to re retitle it to Godzilla versus the cosmic monster, which is how mm-hmm. it was known for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. And I, even I think, because I got a Godzilla box set, one of the very first DVD sets that I got, I can't remember the company that put it out, but it had this movie and, and Terror of Mecha Godzilla and Godzilla's Revenge and and Ghidra and the first movie, God, Godzilla King of the Monsters. Mm-hmm. And I remember when this one actually still had the title as Godzilla versus the Cosmic Monster, and it was like a kind of curved or whatever, mm-hmm. similar to what it looks like, I think, in the uh, in the drive-in ad. That was kind of the the title card that they had for the, for the movie. And, and it's only been in recent years that as we're starting to get the original Japanese prints and and language that we're, we're seeing that movie now known by its real title, which is Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Is there any Godzilla movie that has one title? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure there is, Um, you know, and it's, that started almost from the beginning. You know, and it's so confusing, too. I mean, I know there was a between the original Godzilla, you know, then there's I know there's King of the Monsters, obviously. And then uh, Godzilla raids again and you have Gigantus, the fire monster. But then you have Godzilla's roar is not his roar in the film. And it's it's just such a confusing. Uh, well, even the release schedule, sometimes there would be like because I think it was was an invasion of the Astro Monster comes out in the u.s like five years after its japanese release but then the movies like two or three movies that came out after that preceded it in in the u.s which yep yeah really weird the way that all that worked well it's that and you have that great 
it's a trail it's a drive-in trailer i think where they um it was a double feature of uh war of the gargantuas and monster zero i'm sure you guys have seen that trailer it's great it's great uh but i think that was 1970 i believe and those films have been out for several years at that point i mean maybe not in the states but that's a great double feature um, yeah i think we, we we get spoiled now realizing that we get a chance when movies come out we see it almost simultaneously everywhere in the world when a new Doctor Who episode airs over in the UK. We're getting it a few hours later. We forget those days where Doctor Who, you had to wait a year before you'd see it in the States. And some of these yeah. movies, you'd have to wait months or years. And then, as you said, yeah, the titles changed all the time. Is it is it Hetera or is it the Smog Monster? You know, is it the right. Sea Monster or is it Ebera? You know? Right, right, right. Horror of the Deep, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. So, Jonathan, where does this fit in the series? This is the tail end of the Showa series, right? Yep. Can you kind of like summarize the evolution, like where the series was headed and then what was sort of the state of the union at this time when this movie came out? Yeah, so, you know, obviously, if you're just talking Godzilla films, you had the original, you had, we were just talking about Godzilla raids again, then you had a long you know, a long gap, at least Godzilla-wise. I mean, Toho was still doing, Monster, obviously, doing Varan, they're doing Mothra, they're doing Rodan, uh, and they're doing other sci-fi films like Battle in Outer Space. But then you have King Kong versus Godzilla, and then uh, that was all she wrote. And then, you know, the 60s were just, you know, what, what a lot of people call them, probably for good reason, is the, the golden age of Toho kaiju films. I mean, and not just, not just the great, you know, there's, I mean, some of my favorites are in this stretch, obviously, Monster Zero's might be my favorite or at least it's in top one or two depending on the day you know and mothra and then you have war of the gargantuas and god there's there's so many i can go on and on but you know that's that like everything they're hitting on all cylinders you know you got you got a fukube turning out these amazing scores you have um ag Subaraya probably doing his best work with the best budgets he probably ever had aside you know ultraman aside that's something something else but yeah, just saying, you guys know the story, you know, you get into the late 60s and into the 70s, you know, budgets are getting slashed. TV is becoming much more popular. You have Ultraman. Well, you have Ultra Q, you have Ultraman. Um, and then, you know, then everyone else is trying to get in on that. You have Zone Fighter from Toho and Spectraman, and it just goes on and on. You know, once you get in the 70s, they just, they had to do something different. They didn't have the same budgets. And um, I, you know, I know some people deride the 70s. They like the classic. 1960s Godzilla, they they love that world, and that's you know that's what speaks to them the most. But for me, I mean, I enjoy, I love both. But the early 70s were just so experimental and so strange and so just so 70s. And Godzilla versus the Smog Monster is just, um, I mean, I know we we've, we've spoken about this before, but it's it really is, you know, like an art house Godzilla movie, almost like a horror movie in some ways, and you know, just a one off director and strange score and i mean it was you know soon after first earth day so obviously you know environmental messages are going to be you know right on the nose but i love that one and then you get into um the heavy heavy stock footage era so you have you know godzilla versus gigan and godzilla versus megalon actually it reminds me of a conversation i heard do you guys remember the did you guys listen to the kaiju cast when it was out with kyle yount i heard Um, i heard some of it yeah. yeah So they were talking about those, this era, and, you know, it's particularly those two movies, Godzilla versus Gigan, or Godzilla Monster Island, and Godzilla versus Megalon, and they were talking about the stock footage, and for them, 
they didn't watch these movies when they, like I did, you know, I watched them growing up and, you know, any monster movie marathon that was playing on anywhere, local channels, I was there. And these were not recorded. I just waited, you know, I looked up TV guide and said, saw what the Godzilla marathon was going to be or the Gamma marathon. And, but I saw these movies over and over again, particular ones they played in heavy rotation, like King Kong versus Godzilla, like Monster Zero, um, Destroy All Monsters, not played as often. That's why it was such a treat when it was played because, you know, you had just, you know, every monster was, not every monster, but almost every monster was in there. So that would be really exciting. But I remember when the stock footage scenes would come up in the middle of some battle that Godzilla and Ghidra are having, or Godzilla and Megalon, and you have Jet Jaguar. The stock footage really, really would take me out of it for any, like I said, even though I was six, seven, eight years old, I noticed it and I didn't get it. And I was like, why are they using footage from these other movies? And but just going back to the Kaiju cast, they did not watch these movies growing up. So they their rationale was, well, back then people probably didn't notice because these weren't recorded. They weren't watching on streaming. They weren't, you know, they didn't have VCRs. So, but, uh, and I meant to call in, I should have called in because, well, for me, uh, I did notice. And if you were someone who watched those movies back then, it definitely took you out of it. Anyway, so, but I still adore those movies. I mean, how can you not like... Godzilla running dropkick, I mean, and Godzilla versus Megalon. I mean, it's one of the greatest cinematic moments. I mean, what's not to love? You have to smile. And these movies are supposed to make you happy. You're supposed to have fun watching them. And if you don't have fun watching that, I I don't know. I, you need to read <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This one has some of that. Not as, you know, he doesn't go scooting along on his tail, but there's moments where Godzilla kind of pumps yep. his arms and yep. stomps he's, like he's in a huff or yep. his... There's definitely um, some anthropomorphic stuff going on there, but you know, it, when this comes along, it's great. This is such a refreshing film in some ways because no stock footage, brand new creature designs. The Mechagodzilla design is, I think is amazing. It's still my favorite. I know there are others that came later that obviously have their own merits. I, I think in so many ways, this was such a nice, fresh kind of restart. So at least in these last couple of films of the show era, I think they went on on a pretty relative, on a relative high note, because I know the others, the ones coming before that I just mentioned were mixed reviews, I suppose. Um, designs are great. It's just a fret. There's a freshness to this movie that the other ones might've you know, felt, I don't know, stale's not the right word, but it just, it's, everything was new, you know, and not just one new design. It wasn't just Mechagodzilla, you have King Caesar, which I know some fans are not, is sometimes don't love. I love him because there's no, there's no one, there's no monster like him that I know. This of. was my first exposure to him, and I absolutely love him. I mean, I want a stuffed King Caesar. You know, yes, he's just yes. looks like a puppy dog with a, yep. a poodle with a ball on the end of his tail and floppy yep. ears. I mean, he is yep. fantastic. He's great. He's great. You know, and uh, he's a little lazy because you have to sing to him for, you know, three minutes yeah. for him to wake up. But um, that's what I love about every every monster it comes into the scene with an explosion. Godzilla comes out of the water towards the end for the bed. The water's exploding. He's coming out of a building. He's exploding. King Caesar, you know, I know he's under he's in a mound, but there's an explosion. But, yeah, there's just certain just going back to production notes. You had um, Tiroshi. I think that's his first play. His last name's Nakano. He worked under Subaraya you know, for many years, but this, at this point, Subariot had passed away and he's obviously the, you know, the pioneer in special effects for these films, but man, they may not have had a big budget, but the pyrotechnics, I don't know how people did not get hurt on these sets because everything is on fire, especially that in, industrial battle between when Godzilla and Mechagodzilla, Mechagodzilla is not exposed yet. 
it's just everything is just on fire and expl- and it looks amazing especially in this these new criterion releases just really uh vivid and you know really beautiful they could do pyro they definitely did pyro they did it well some questions that you probably would know because i'm not as familiar with the series i've seen them out of order and i'm sure there's not really any continuity but just uh, like in this one, it's a big deal that Godzilla like gets charged during the storm with the lightning yeah. and everything. Is that yeah. new? Had that been introduced before? Not, not that I know of. Uh, I don't remember it ever being mentioned in any of the other preceding um, Godzilla films. You know, I know there's that scene. He's on the island. The poor guy, he just gets in this scrap with Mechagodzilla and he's going to lick his wounds. He's get hit by lightning half a dozen times. Somehow, apparently, that makes you magnetic or have magnetic <laughs> powers. Uh, oh, hi, Boo Boo. Sorry, no, someone's. No, who's that? Stella. We're talking about Godzilla. We're talking about Mecha Godzilla. Here, come here. Say hi. Look, say hi. Hi. Hi, Watson. Hi, Yeah. What do you have to say? That's it? Hey, do you watch Godzilla movies with your dad? Do you watch Godzilla movies? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yes. Boo-boo, do you want to do your Godzilla roar? You want to do it? Uh. Go for it. Uh. <laughs> Whoa, that is good. Yeah, it's very scary. It's very scary. <laughs> uh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Okay, sorry about that. No, don't be. That Absolutely is, not. She's in the heat a lot. I think she's a little uh, heat exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the whole magnetic thing. No, that was um, I not not that I not to my knowledge. I don't know if that was in an earlier script, maybe that got scrapped and they didn't, you know, they didn't film those scenes. But that's another interesting. Um, I don't know. I it was, I'm curious to see what you guys how you guys feel about it. But it obviously comes into play you know, at the end of the movie and just, did it feel like it was just kind of thrown in there to you or, or it was no, in, in fact, this whole movie, the plot, the story, the script, I thought was very, it's very complex, but yeah. it, it makes sense, you know, as much as they make sense. And this to me again, was an improvement over Megalon for sure. As you know, there's a lot of detail. I, there were a lot of surprises. Like I was with them. I'm like, why is Godzilla attacking Angiris, yeah. They're friends, you know? I, know, I didn't know. Yeah. I'm like, why is he doing that? And yeah. so that was kind of a mystery that was revealed. I really liked that. The whole thing, I mean, it was like James Bond meets Godzilla meets Planet of the Apes. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was just yeah. so many, so intricate. And I, I thought really clever and fun. Yeah, I yeah. thought that, yeah, this one, I, I think, handles that, the subplot storyline, so much better than they did it in some of the 90s movies mm-hmm. um, yeah i love the classic you know the, the showa era and then i and i know then you go and you got we have what after terra mecha godzilla there's how many years yeah, yeah. Almost nine ten years until uh godzilla 1985 or yeah 1984. yeah, yeah. And, and so then you go things are, are are a bit more adult i guess mm-hmm. with that and then um oh, what was the one after that with the big uh, Biolante. Biolante. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. But then when the, the movies that follow the 90s, I'm not as big of a fan of the 90s era mm-hmm. of movies because there was some weird, like it was more adult, but then there was some, sometimes they would do these weird subplots and special effects that kind of harken back to the early 70s at times for me. 
And then, of course, you get into the post-Godzilla 2000 era, and, and I thought I, I like that era a lot better. A little more. Uh, even though I, you know, I'm trying to remember, I don't have a lot of memory. I've only seen Final Wars once, and I know a lot of people <laughs> you know, aren't a huge fan of that one. So uh, my my goal is that when we start watching this Godzilla series is that we will get to Terror of Mecha Godzilla, which is the end of Carla's commitment. Because she said she watched that box set with me. My goal is then that she will she will be so into it that she simply can't stop there. That she wants to continue on all the way through the the rest of the series. So possible, you got to get her hooked. You know, you got to create the right circumstances. You know, that's my goal anyway. We'll we'll see how it goes. You know, I'm I'm worried about the uh, the jet jaguar. You know that that's going to be a, a, a troublesome. <laughs> <laughs> the Jaguar is another another one that gets so uh, you know he's he's a whipping boy. I feel like I enjoy him. I know Derek over at Monster Kid Radio is a big fan of Jet Jaguar as well. Yeah. But. All the Godzilla movies are a little bit different. Yeah, you got to look at all the different films. Like Gojira is such a dark and serious film, yeah. right? Compo- compared to what you've got just you know a few films later. Yeah. Where- get a lot more lighthearted, you know, and then, you know, then you kind of get, you're getting a lot goofier in the early seventies. And then with this movie, we kind of scale that back a little bit and get a little more serious. And then it's, then you're staying generally more serious for the rest of the film series. I think, you know, the nineties being this kind of like, are you a fan of the nineties? I like, I like them enough. I mean, I, they have their, their moments um i like i've grown to like a little more um as a second or third in that series uh godzilla versus ghidra the time travel i mean it's a it's a wackadoodle plot and they go back and there's a lot of uh, yeah that's what i just that eric does the plots are just a little they're yeah they're uh, i guess ambitious but also it can be really uh Really confusing. <laughs> yeah, because then you're dealing with the space Godzilla when they do, when they throw space Godzilla yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. They kind of lose me in that one. And I'm thinking <laughs> that you know when I revisit those movies, I'll have to pay me pay a little more closer attention. I think I've got better prints of the films now than mm-hmm. I did the last time I saw them, so that always helps. And I've got the original language films now, whereas before I had dubbed versions, so mm-hmm. that can can make or break a movie a lot of times. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you, you were talking about the plot of this. It's, it, I know it's, you know, derivative of some other, you know, what was popular at the time. And I guess at this point, you guys, I know, are big fans of the original Planet of the Apes, um, you know, franchise. And I guess at this point, it was at the tail end of those original five films. This is 74. I'm assuming that Planet of the Apes was st- still super popular, you know, at this time. That's part of why that factored in, because, you know, and who doesn't want to see space apes from the third planet of the black? Yeah. Planet? Yeah. I just love talking about this movie because you, you're describing the plot and it just you can't help but smile because it's so it's everything in the kitchen sink. But to me, in the best way. I remember when that because I had forgot about that when that that popped up. I'm like, you know, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's just like it is like, OK, clearly, you know, somebody watched Planet of the Apes before they did this movie because but but there's. There's another Japanese series too that kind of they did their own. You mean a Planet of the Apes? Time of the Apes. Yeah, their Time of the Apes. Yes, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mystery Science Theater had fun with that one, I believe. I, I don't know if I've ever seen it in full. I think it might be rough. But it's kind of like with anything. I think you know. Again, you know, clearly there's you know. Okay, well we've got a mechanical monster. We'll call it a bionic monster. You yeah. know. And then there was some uh, something I read about how that there was 
Mechagodzilla was inspired, at least in part, by Mechanicong from right. King Kong Escapes, which was um, seven years earlier. So, yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jonathan, what about that? Because to me, Toho seems like they pretty much forged their own road. Was this something new for them to try to capitalize on other things that I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think they realized they had to do something different if they're going to keep this series going. And I'm not sure if they thought they would go beyond how far they thought they could go beyond, you know, this one. I mean, I know it's Terra Mechagodzilla, which is which is solid too, I think. But yeah, I think they realized they had to to try something new. And and they did, I know they poured um, more money into this one than they had the, the films preceding. Uh, and it was coming up as a 20 year anniversary at this point of Godzilla. So oh, yeah. they wanted to kind of give the series a little jolt. So I think, and yeah, I'm sure they thought back Mechanicon Kong and um, was, you know, a great kaiju villain. And, you know, why not do that with Mechagodzilla? And if they had, if they had flubbed the design, it, this could have gone really badly. You know, the design is great. Not to mention they're tripping out this. I've never seen this kind of uh, this many gadgets and this many weapons in any kaiju ever. And it's like, <laughs> again, kind of everything in the kitchen sink, but it completely works, I think. So this is where I, I'm going to I'm going to totally own my <laughs> my 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 thoughts on Mechagodzilla. I'm, I enjoy Mechagodzilla. It's not my favorite. For me, I, I will prefer Godzilla to be fighting a monster, you know, mm. another monster. The whole mechanical Godzilla aspect is, I've ne it's never been a go-to for me. And I know that that's blasphemy for a lot of Godzilla fans where they, you know, look at Mechagodzilla as one of the best ideas. The movie is solid, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, again, considering where they had just been, it makes this movie even better because they, they clearly upped their game with this film. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, I think the mechanic, uh, well, the uh, Mechagodzilla, I think it got watered down over time. And maybe yeah. that's where my impression is tainted because where I, I really enjoy this movie and terror of Mechagodzilla, I'm thinking of like the nineties version mm -hmm. and the, was it the Millennium Era? Mm -hmm. Yep. We have yeah. the Heisei, Heisei, mm -hmm. Heisei, Heisei, Heisei Millennium. Era, and then the Millennium Era. And I think by the Millennium Era, we got Mechagodzilla again. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we get him in the, in the most recent you oh, know, yeah. Godzilla film, which I, I mean, I loved and I thought they did great with it. But I, I just feel like they've, they've gone to that well so many times yeah. that okay. I appreciate when Godzilla goes up against some new crazy monster even though yep it's a guy in a suit and we've and right. we've made some changes here and there and it's right. i don't know it's a, and it can be formulaic but you know it's not like we you know we saw king Ghidorah obviously several times and and right. he's my favorite of all the kaiju i just i love the sound effects and oh sure and, and that but most of the other monsters especially from the show era i mean who were standalone you know mm -hmm. they might pop up and in the background in a scene or whatever, you know, or made multiple appearances, but they had kind of their one movie, right? Yeah. Whereas Mechagodzilla seemed to rank, and again, because he was so popular, kind of ranked multiple films on the franchise. So Right, right, right. So well, I will turn in my Godzilla card at the door. No, no, I totally I, I totally get what you're I totally get what you're saying. And you know, I 
I generally prefer when he fights, when Godzilla fights an actual monster. I mean, I guess, you know, Mechagodzilla is a cyborg and, and that's part of the, one of my few cons for this movie. And then it got worse in the nineties and maybe in the end of two thousands is that I like my monsters to like get in close and really mix it up like hand to hand fight hand to hand paw to paw, claw to claw. But, um, <laughs> you know, I don't like when it's just beam battles and okay. you can't even like, cause that becomes a little too prominent uh, in some of the later films. So, but I guess that's the point. Mechagodzilla is so power, has so many weapons. Godzilla can't even get close to him. He's getting, getting pummeled. And so is, uh, although King Caesar and Mechagodzilla have an actual, I enjoy that fight a little better, actually, the one where they're, those two are, because they're actually, man, but I guess that's the point. He's so, Power. He has so many weapons. Godzilla can't even get near him, and he, you know his blood spray. I feel like I'm watching, you know, like Lady Snowblood, or uh, you so, know, one of those, or one of the, you know, arterial sprays. And, yeah, you know. I wanted to ask you about that. It, it seems like every time I watch one of these movies, it's bloodier than I remember. And even Gamma, yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, I yeah. thought these were kids' movies. What's all this blood? How how does this rank in that? Is it just, is that always there in some little capacity or? It, it, this one did seem bloodier to me. It is, yeah. No, and you're right. It is blood. It is blood. Definitely. This is, I think, oh, Godzilla versus Gigan. Um, definitely had Godzilla definitely bleeds, and now his blood shooting out of his shoulder and out of his nose. Um, poor uh, Anguirus, Godzilla's loyal sidekick, runs into Gigan's buzzsaw and blood goes right at the camera, like right into the camera. But you got to love him. He's scrappy and he's, uh, he doesn't, I felt so bad for him in this one. He gets his jaw broken. I know. That, yeah. like, well, Mechagodzilla was like, yeah, get out of here. Just that, that was, uh, that was cruel. I thought. Yeah, he grabbed the jaw of Mechagodzilla, right? We think it's Godzilla, but grabs right. the jaws. And I, you know, you know what's coming. And I'm like, oh no, they're not, not going to go there. And I don't yeah. think it goes all the way. Like right. I think of, the uh, 76 King Kong when, yeah. Uh, Kong gets the snake and yeah. pulls it, splits it almost down. And so it, they didn't go that far, but they went further than I thought they would with pulling the That's jaw the and the blood and everything. Yep, yep. And so there was some attention to detail in this one because right after they do that, you know, his roar is a little different. It's stilted. It's uh, it's it's not coming out the way it normally does. I thought, oh, that's they didn't have to do that. They could have just had. So you can hear it's it's labored as he's crawling away and is you know goes back underground. So I thought that was. Uh, that was really cool. But yes, this and um, Godzilla vs. Gigan has blood. I think I don't think uh, the follow up Terror Godzilla is bloody. And then I, I think there were different. There were uh, this was controversial on the set. I believe this is what I've heard. I don't know if it's Subaraya and Tanaka, the producer, told me uh, Tanaka, the very, you know, legendary producer of these films. There were some disagreements about should Godzilla really bleed like, you know, kids are these are kids movies. You know, is this really appropriate? So I know. And then I, I think. They had their controversies over time. You know, should Godzilla do a shade dance in Monster Zero? You know, he does the dance. and the, Or should he fly, you know, with his tail? So, you know, some folks thought that was too much. Others love it. But that's what's ended up in the movie. And that's what we, you know, that's what we have. But I know the bleeding. I think it was controversial. And I think they were disagreeing. I don't think everyone was on the same page when it came to that. And then to forget the Gamera films. I mean, they get they get super bloody. Yeah. At least. But yeah, no, it wasn't... Um, after I think after this you saw some of that, but I think the this and Godzilla vs. Gigan were probably the ones where the bleeding kaiju were most prominent. Honestly, the monsters don't usually get killed, even you know, in these movies. Um, you know, they get thrown into the sea or they fly away. Uh, there's some exceptions, you know. Obviously, Ghidra gets stomped to death and uh, <laughs> destroy all monsters, and um, you know, I guess Mechagodzilla explodes. 
but it was not often that a kaiju actually gets gets killed. But yeah, no, I know it wasn't it wasn't typical for the series for there to be a lot of a lot of blood, and even with the human action, I mean, there's some there's some scenes here and there. You know, someone gets shot, there's a little blood, or you know, someone has a fist fight and you see blood on their face. But these were not known to be bloody movies. You know, with a few you know, with a few exceptions. So, but yeah. What about the humans in this? We've hardly even mentioned them. And I know that's not why you go, but usually there's a human story. And right. I guess this one was pretty solid. I mean, usually there's something that's just so ridiculous about the human characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't really think that here. What What is you guys' take on the, the human part of this story? I, I, I thought they, they were they were pretty good. I thought that, you know, the story, I guess, is pretty straightforward. Although, you know, I mean, I love how they start out. There's intrigue right away because, you know, you have, well, they, the first thing you show, they show is Anguirus. You know, why is, why are they just showing this one lone monster, you know, hanging out in the snow? And it turns out he's calling Godzilla and there's more to it. You know, I love the whole prophecy angle, ancient yes. prophecy. Okay, now that's great. Great stuff. You know, that's, you know, that's what you want, I think, in these types of movies. So um, I love all that. And that that's not something you had in... I think they tried they tried to delve into this in some of the later, maybe the Millennium films, um, a little bit of this. I think in Giant Monsters, all out of GMK. But yeah, the whole thing with the prophecy. And I mean, they don't get into a lot of detail about like Okinawan history or the, the, the Royal Izumi family, but there's just enough to make yeah. it intriguing, I think. So that was great. And I think Akihito Karada, uh, Harada in, um, you know, who's was such a, uh, he's in every, almost every iconic Godzilla film in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Uh, I was gonna ask you about, yeah, to yeah. Our, our listeners who might not be familiar with the name. Yeah. He of course played Dr. Sarazawa in Kojiro. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and that sets the precedent. And, and yeah, he's in, as you say, practically every big movie, the list, I was looking at the list here and it's just like, well, Mysterians, H-Man, Varan, Atragon, Ghidorah, Ultraman, the son of Godzilla. He's just in practically every film. So yeah, he would have been coming again 20 years after his first appearance. Yeah. And him coming back, that was huge, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he lends a little like weight, I feel like. I mean, everyone, I think everyone is, I think the cast is just fine. But uh, he just adds a little, a little something extra. I feel like. I mean, not to mention he's the one that figures. I love that line that yeah, when he he's like, "Well, I figured out that's the space titanium. And that's why there's Mechagodzilla." Like, he's like, "The space titanium is the key," and just you know. Yeah, that, yeah. I had a note about that. He love it. It can only be space titanium, and it's alien because this space titanium is the evidence. I mean, right, right. Fuzzy yeah, logic, yeah. but it. Yeah, it right. It's just yep, absolutely. And he's got his cool pipe, you know. And yeah, um, and now I'll admit that lost me. I didn't understand the science lesson on the pipe, and I still don't really I understand how that radio waves or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> either exactly. As far as the cast goes, I like the guy who plays the scenery chewing, the head of the space apes. The um, yeah, I don't know that actor's name, but he's great. Uh, and I um, love his voice in the dub as well. I love the voice. Goro Goro Mitsumi. Uh, okay, right, 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 right. Uh, he comes back in terror of Mechagodzilla playing a yes. different character, but... He does, he does. I think he's great, and I love the... Um, uh, that's also pretty bloody, too. Do you guys remember when he gets shot at the end? And that girl, oh, right. I was like, that's... that's uh, he was in a in a show called Magma Man in 73, which I've never heard of, of Magma Man. I don't know that I mean, one. 
He played Commander Umino. Mm. I mean, I suppose it could be an anime, uh, but I, I didn't look like it was voice. It looked like it was. I don't know. I, I was. I figured you might. You figured you would know of anybody. Magma Man. No, not. I don't know Magma Man. <laughs> now I have to look at a Magma Man. The other. Did you guys recognize the Interpol agent? That actor. The three of us have probably only discovered these movies in the last few years because of Arrow Video's trilogy that they put out. Shin Kashida, I think his name is Shin. Shin Kashida. Yes. He plays Dracula in Lake of Dracula. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think at least in one of them. I don't know if he's in one of the other ones. I've only seen those trilogy, those three, um, the Bloodthirsty Trilogy. I've only seen each of them once. I mean, I have the set and I'm sure I'll revisit them, but yeah. he has a very distinct face. I'm like, where do I know him? So I looked it up and yeah, Lake of Dracula. Hmm. Um, that's true. He has a very distinctive face. I, I didn't catch that. Yeah. yeah. That's an interesting trilogy of films as well. Yeah, well worth checking out. The last yeah. thing I want to ask you about, Jonathan, is the camera work. This may be a subliminal part of all of the movies, but during the fighting, I realized in this one how much that can contribute to the excitement of the fights. I mean, this one really had a lot of like cameras zooming in or by them as they're fighting. Yeah, and yep. Yep. I really never noticed that before, but that really not only like physically feeling like you're in the midst of the action, but just it's exciting to yeah. watch because, you know, the camera's just not stationary. Is there anything unique about that in this one or have I just not noticed that before? I don't think, I think there were definitely some unique, again, going back to why this movie feels, you know, fresh, you know, especially if you watch them in order. The, especially the pan around, you know, and the panning in and out, you know, during these monster battles. Yeah, that's unique. I didn't see, you don't see a lot of that in the uh, films before this. Not that, you know, Ishiro Honda obviously knew how to direct photography and all that, but um, there was definitely some, this was definitely unique in a lot of ways, I feel like. And the fact that you notice that, it does just, it was kind of an outlier, I feel like. Uh, this is not, this was not typical. And again, we're go, we keep, I know we keep saying it, but it was the 70s there. They were doing, you know, they were doing different things. Uh, the other thing, do you guys, what do you guys think of the set designs? And they, I love the lair. The Space Apes Lair, I think it's great. It's colorful. It looks so good on the um, Criterion set. It really pops. Yeah. When I've ever seen I love it. the button to release the doors inside a, I don't know if it's stalactite or stalagmite, but, yeah. you know, in the cave, they just pull yeah. back the top and push the button. Yep, yep. This, I thought, was a little funny. Uh, I think, oh, gosh, I don't remember if it's Mechagodzilla or Godzilla. One of the first times one of them's on a rampage and destroy it's the first time like a building is destroyed in this it's like out in the middle of nowhere it's yeah. not in the city or anything i'm like yeah. oh that's odd there's one big tall building here in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> that's a budget yeah i think that's yeah 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 and that's uh i think that's pretty too you know they did i don't think even though the budget was more for this one i don't think they had the kind of budget where they could do full-on to do those full-on cityscapes and you see that and you see that in the 70s you don't see a lot of large-scale uh, destruction. It's just too expensive. So Yeah, and that's you know, fine. I mean, we had plenty yeah. of that, so it's nice to see something new and not just do the same old thing. Yeah. I would think, though, from a construction standpoint, you know that Godzilla pops up about every other year and destroys something. Right. Why would you build this tall building? It's <laughs> right. like building a mobile home park in, in, you know, Tornado Alley. It's just like, put a big X. Right, up, right, up, right, like, right. Here, right. Godzilla, let's stomp here. Right, right. Yeah, but he really had it in for that building. Man, he was <laughs> he's like, I don't know what that built, what if it was uh, a company, you know, he used to work for, I don't know, but <laughs> he really like pummeled that building. So I think when they could do something, 
when they could feature destruction, they really like, you know, zeroed yeah, in on it. Yeah, because yeah, otherwise, Terror Mecha Godzilla, they wanted to do more full on, you know, city based battles, but they didn't have the mind. There's some good stuff in Terror Mecha where, you know, Godzilla is throwing Titanosaurus into a bill. It's awesome, but they, they couldn't do a ton of it. So that's why you see in the, especially in the 70s, a lot of landscape, like Godzilla versus Megalon, they're just fighting on the. Yeah. Yeah. you know which work totally worked you know i don't think they could afford to do uh what they might have done at one time you know they featured what they could but yeah i love that i love the set design i love it even it i there are things i've no, i noticed in more recent screenings of this movie that i did not more detail in some of these um so some of these interior sets that i hadn't noticed and um it's just really fun and i love it's such a bond i guess it's sort of a bond thing i'm not a I'm not a James Bond expert, but like the villain has his, um, you know, whether it's Bond or someone else and, you know, he's not going to just dispatch the person. He's going to put them in a, I don't know, a shark tank or something. And this way he puts them in the room where it just gets really Yeah, it's like the heat lamps and the steam. And then they did something similar. I think King Kong escapes, but it was all cold and they're all free, you know, they're freezing. Um, but I love that because it just would be too simple, you know, to just just you know take a gun i mean what fun is that you know yeah. so, be a short um, movie right right exactly and when they when uh they send mechagodzilla to destroy uh, king caesar before he wakes up king mechagodzilla could just flown over there <laughs> and be there in like 30 seconds but he's walking over and to, again it helps the story but um it's just kind of funny when you you know you, you look at it now and he's just taking a sweet old time and gives can you see a chance to get up and listen to the song? And that song is just, it's so funny because you think it's done. Did you guys get that feeling? And yeah, then, I, then my note was, oh, there's a second verse. <laughs> He's just lazy, you know? He just has to be a full, full-on song. And it's just, it's really funny. I like King Caesar. I know, I know fans, a lot of fans don't, but uh, I think he's fun. And just so different. You don't see that kind of like a, like a scruffy lion dog kaiju you just don't not that i know of uh can think of uh, maybe an ultra like something we'd see in an ultraman yeah. episode right. almost. yeah not yeah. not a typical godzilla you know adversary but definitely something you'd expect to see in, in an ultraman right right or yeah. space giants you know <laughs> something yeah, yeah. That, that yeah different i, I don't want to say childish but more fantasy based right you know? right 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 uh, and I, I also like the suit actor who plays Mechagodzilla. I forget the gentleman's name, but I thought he was great. Like the way he walked, especially before he revealed that he was Godzilla. Um, he, he, you know, he just had that kind of stilted mechanical walk. I thought he did great. I mean, he could have just walked along. I thought that was great. And I love Mechagodzilla's first reveal. You know, I, I'm not a huge fan of the score, except for the theme. That jazzy theme is really fun. And when, when Mechagodzilla re- reveals his true form and they're panning up and you're seeing all his gadgets and his, you know, even has his initials. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Uh, I think we talked about the score before we started recording. So I, I right. might give a second. So it's composer uh, Masaru Sato. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Original score, something that was generally not, it didn't pick up previous mm-hmm. elements from, from films with the one exception being the segment from uh, Son of Godzilla, mm-hmm. uh, where the uh, praying mantis creatures from that film are going to the jungle. And it's right. just this really weird kind of jazzy yep. jungle beat almost that you hear in this movie, it's like subtle, it's in the background. Yeah. As soon as you pick it up, it's like, well, this is different. 
than a lot of the other music in this in this movie. Yeah, interesting that they went kind of a different route in this movie. And yeah, it's not my favorite, but there was some like you said, you're, those two cool elements in the moments in the movie uh, definitely stood out. Yeah, his his music is nothing like Fukube's. Um, so if you're comparing, it's quite a it's quite a contrast. But his um, his score, I believe, he scored a lot of Kurosawa films. Um, I mean, his work spans definitely other genres. When we go to Terror Me- Mechagodzilla, the last film, where they bring uh, Fukube back, and it's an original score, even though they bring some of the original themes from the uh, the first Godzilla film. But the score for that is great. It's very somber. Most of the time, or there's some rousing moments. It was nice that they could bring back um, Fukube for the last of the Showa films in Terra Mechagodzilla. It's a, it's a great score. But yeah, this one, the theme I like. The jazzy theme is fun, but otherwise, um, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, the music is so big, such a part of. Uh, I mean, you can't. Can you picture watching a Godzilla movie, you know, without these icon- iconic scores? I'm not sure what it, the experience would be like. You know, I mean, it'd be different. Movie, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What else? What are what else should we know, or are we missing about this, Jonathan? Um, I mean, that's. I think its place is is pretty clear. I think it's it, it's safe to say that this is probably in most fans. Uh, I can't speak for all fans, but I think this usually ends up in the top five or top ten of most uh, fans of kaiju films and Godzilla films. Um, I, th- I think it's it's pretty pretty highly regarded for all the reasons you know we talked about. Like I said, I think this and Terramaka Godzilla was were um, really an opportunity for the series to go out on a on a pretty high note. After you know they went through some rough patches. Like I said, I love those films that came before this, but um, you know this is just uh, these last two. Like I know I'm obsessing about the stock footage, but new <laughs> stock footage, all original, you know, uh, original stuff. So um, it probably played a big part in in the fact that the the series was able to continue in the 80s if they would have ended right. on like a on really gigan or megalon might have been a harder sell to bring back godzilla in in the 80s whereas you could they could sit there and say well look where we ended you know and, and there's right. there's still something there right let's do right. a soft reboot and bring godzilla back and return of godzilla and then let's you know move forward with the a different approach to the film. So, right. Right. And I think, yeah, I think this one did pretty well. I, I don't know. Terramaka Godzilla, even though I, I think it's a strong, a strong ending in the series. I, I don't think it did that well. And then they just closed up shop for the next, you know, nine, 10 years. But I'd be really curious if they had kept going, like what would a late seventies, <laughs> early eighties Godzilla? I just can't imagine. I know they had a bunch of ideas bringing the gargantuas back from more of the gargantuas, a, a sequel to the smog monster, which I, that took place somewhere in Africa. I would have loved to have seen these, you know, these are, these are the lot, well, they're not lost films. They were never created. It would have been so interesting, I think, to have seen this series continue. And I know there was a, re- there are obvious reasons for the show, a series. Well, just the opportunity to see a late seventies yeah. Japanese disco era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yep. who knows what they would have done with that. <laughs> Right, right. The possibilities, you know, um, <laughs> my God, you know, in movies, you know, you had, and then, you know, obviously it was only a few years later, you have, you know, you have, you have Jaws, you have Star Wars, you have Close Encounters, you know, and then a little later you have Indiana Jones and the movies are getting just, they're back to prominence and big budget popcorn films are, you know, all the rage. I mean, this lull in, and when it comes to film, or at least in Japan, I mean, I don't know where the, um, 
when the comeback began, I mean, it began, I don't know. There's kind of a, I feel like there's kind of a, uh, a blank spot for me, at least. Like, I don't know what happened when you get from the mid seventies to the mid eighties between Terramecha Godzilla and Godzilla returns or Godzilla 1985 in the Japanese film. You know, you have movies like house from Toho. Have you guys seen house? Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's well, interesting. you think, but you know, what, what we have from the, from the Kaiju films, we had Gamera super monster, right? Which so really we have to be thankful that that didn't break it altogether. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just buried the genre, you know? Yep. Yep. And even, yeah, the Gamera, I mean, the Gamera films, they did well, you know, they, but yeah, they, you know, there was that long gap in between the, I think 1971 was the last Gamera, well, between uh, the last of that original run and then you have Gamera Super Monster. Yeah, I'm not sure what was going on in the Japanese film industry when it comes to, like, when you get to the late 70s, except for House. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I can think of some other films, but as far as trends go, I have no, I have no idea. But I would have been really curious to see, you know, what, what Toho or Daie they had kept going with camera, you know, what they would have um, uh, or could have done. But yeah, it's, it's interesting to speculate. I love some of the ideas I've heard and sadly they didn't, but we have 15 films in the show, a series. So I guess we can't really complain. And that's a lot of move for like a lot of know, movies genre or subgenre. That's, that's a good run. So I guess we can't, we don't have much to, you know, much to complain about the high state films. I'm, you know, I'm okay with, you know, I enjoy some of them. The millennium films are, are fun, but I'm I'm a I'm a show a guy, you know, when it comes down to it. Hey, you want to say hi again? That's perfect timing. I think we're all done talking about Godzilla. Yeah. No, no. No what? I want milkshakes. She wants milkshakes. So do you guys? Well, you're at the drive-in, right? Do they milkshakes? Can I'm someone sure they do. They do. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Rich, can you guys pick one up for her? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, you go, you try to find a milkshake or they'll get one for you. Don't, okay. <laughs> Rich, did you have anything else to say about it? Just want to say that the, the movie is pretty easily out there. Yep. Um, it's part of the Criterion Collection. So there's the amazing Blu-ray Godzilla Showa era set. I mean, look at that. That is beautiful. Yeah, that's, How cool is that? I mean, I know you guys have this. The artwork is amazing. amazing. And... I'm itching to dive into that set so bad. That's that's easy. It's out there. It's going for about 150 right now, but I'm sure it's not out of print. I don't think. I don't but think so. At some point, most Criterions do go out of print. They probably have a window of opportunity, so don't wait. Get it uh, sooner than later. And of course, if you want to watch it at home without buying, I don't know why you would. But if you do, it's on the Criterion channel. The whole uh, all of the Showa era films are there. It's not on Amazon Prime, so you're going to have to to go through the Criterion channel. And, of course, you can find it on DVD out there, the out-of-print DVDs. Of course, I think they're going to be the the dubbed versions. I don't think that they had the original. Well, I guess they did get some. I think they did get released on Mm -hmm. the original Japanese language on DVD before Criterion. Those are generally going, I think, for about $40. Uh, Shop around. I think you can see them, some of them on HBO Max as well, because they have some of the Criterion channels. I was, I was thinking of that. Yeah, they probably yeah. do have some on there. This one, I think, is on there uh, in the uh, the subtitle version, not the uh, dub version. Well, that probably makes sense as a way to kind of cross promote with the new with the right. new uh, Godzilla. Yeah, that's all I've got. Except while you're here, before you leave, I've got to do what happened in Japan in 1970. Oh, right, of course. 
you know, taking a look at, at all the, the years the movies were released that we're seeing at the drive-in tonight, I think we've covered them on the show once before, but we didn't do what was happening in Japan. Sorry, no Queen of England this go-around, but the emperor in Japan was Hirohito. The prime minister, we had two prime ministers in Japan. I'm going to butcher the names. Kakeo Tanaka and Takeo Miki. And mm. I, I apologize. There was a 6.9 earthquake in the Izu Peninsula on May 9th. 30 people died and 102 were injured. That's a cover-up. That was really a Godzilla attack. <laughs> Popular films in 1974 included Lady Snowblood, Love Song of Vengeance, Lone Wolf and Cub, White Heaven in Hell. Popular TV shows of the day included Cayman Rider, Space Battleship Yamamoto, and Ultraman Leo. And last but not least, a British glam rock band called Japan was formed, but not in Japan. They were formed in the uh, UK. They patterned their look, their kind of androgynous look, and their, and their overall style on the Japanese culture initially. And apparently they were very successful. I've never heard of, of this glam rock band. Me neither. And they had five albums between 78 and 81. They had a top five hit in the UK in 1981 called Ghosts. That's what was happening in Japan in 1974 when things weren't getting destroyed by Godzilla and friends. I think it's about time for the next movie to get going. So we've got to make a run to the to the concession stand. Yes. Well, we know we're getting a milkshake for Stella. Yes, yes. <laughs> she wants a strawberry. She asked for strawberry. Okay. That's good. Yeah. And I have no preconceived notions on what I'm going to get. I'm just going to see what appeals to me when I get there. Nice. Jonathan, nice. thank you for, for, for knocking on our window and coming by. This is awesome that we've been having you. I guess this is your second appearance, but really your, your true first appearance on the show, talking about movies proper. So yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. What a fortuitous, you know, who would have thought, you know, I'd run into you guys. I mean, it was a Godzilla, it is a Godzilla movie, but still, still, there are a lot of cars out here. So, you know, the fact that I walk by yours is... Yeah, I I think we will probably have Godzilla on the show again at some point in the future. And so I'm just going to come right out and and invite you back on the show. You clearly know a little thing or two about Kaiju. So we want to have you back on the show. I would love it. No, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. Thanks, guys. This was so much fun. Yeah, thank you. We'll talk to you soon, I hope. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see you soon. Dog days. Hot dog days, that is somehow have a way of turning out to be fun days. The pop and sizzle of the juicy meat seems to say, come and get me, I'm done to a turn. Yep, hungry or not, it's hard to resist the tantalizing aroma and taste appeal of a sizzling hot dog. The nice part of it is, there's one waiting for you right now at the refreshment stand. Show starts in three... of horror is born as science fiction becomes science fact. If you find any problems out there, go to the place. Just keep it to yourself. 
down another 20 or 30 hills just like the one we burned. I mean, this right here is scientific phenomenon. As you know, all species of megalomorphs are cannibalistic. If you put them together, they'll kill each other off. They just don't colonize like ants or bees do. An army of deadly predators, searching, destroying anything in their path. Why did they come? What do they want? In the tradition of the great science fiction thrillers, Dimension Pictures presents Kingdom of the Spiders. Starring William Shatner, Tiffany Bowling, Woody Strode, and introducing Althavis Davis. The spiders in this area have organized themselves into an aggressive army. I've never seen anything like it. One minute they weren't there, and the next minute they were everywhere. Jump at a girl! There's thousands of them out there. We'll never make it. Why haven't we heard from the sheriff? He must know we're trapped in here. I'm telling you, I don't think we should chance it. Your nightmares will never be the same. Kingdom of the Spiders. The next victim could be you. Richard, our prediction last time was correct. We did indeed run into somebody here at the drive-in. That was pretty awesome, huh? Absolutely. Like-minded individuals love to gather at the drive-in and, and with a triple feature like we've got, I mean, we should have known that Jonathan would be at a Godzilla movie, whether it's the bionic monster or the cosmic monster or Mecha Godzilla, whatever the name is. Yeah, we knew he'd have to be here. It was good to see him. Good yeah, see definitely. Him. Been a while. Our next movie is Kingdom of the Spiders from 1977. It was released or premiered in San Francisco on August 24th, 1977, made by a company called Arachnid Productions, distributed by Dimension Pictures, written by Richard Robinson and Alan Kalu, and directed by John Bud Cardos. You know, I love Kingdom of the Spiders. I, you know, I think my first time seeing it, I didn't see it in the theaters, but probably early 80s, maybe. I don't know where I said, I mean, it was probably on like HBO, I think back in the day. It's probably where I first saw it. I, I have some memories of finding it in the HBO guide, you know, that treasured thing, those those monthly, the TV guides and the HBO guides. I mean, those were our Bibles at the time and long before the days of on-screen guides. Of course, it had William Shatner in it. So anything with William Oh, Shatner. Richard, you spoiled it. I was You were going to be so proud of me. I was going to tell you I had a Star Trek reference in this. <laughs> well, you know, we've got a couple Star Trek references. And, and in fact, there are some Star Trek references in, in the next movie, Messiah of Evil. When we talk about that, it'd be kind of interesting. I've got some interesting thoughts on the uh, lead actress in that movie. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's Shatner. You know, I mean, it's like everything that... Shatner was cranking out at that point. I and I still, to a lesser degree, I, I gravitate towards anything Shatner does. I will certainly listen a moment or two of his latest musical releases, but those are pretty painful. But he's still going strong. You know, he he turned 90 this year, and he does have a new movie that kind of looks like it might be kind of funny called Senior Moment. With uh, Gene Smart and Christopher Lloyd, uh, and apparently he like he loses his driver's license, and so he starts taking the bus, and he ends up meeting 
Gene Smart and there's some type of romance going on there. But like Christopher Lloyd is his sidekick. There's a, some hilarious moments in the trailer. It kind of looks interesting. So he has slowed down a little bit in recent years. But I mean, my God, he's 90 and he doesn't look 90. He still looks like he's maybe, maybe 70. He looks really good for his age. This was a time period, of course, that Shatner was not yet back in Star Trek mode. Those nebulous years between 69 and 79 when Shatner's toupee had a, a wide variety of appearances. Uh, he was looking a little better by the late 70s. Early to mid-70s, Shatner looked a little rough. He had lost a little bit of weight by this point because he had gained some weight. And he was just on the verge of getting back into the swing of things with uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture in 79, which I think was kind of a, a renaissance for his career. And, and of course, that led to T.J. Hooker and eventually what was the 911 show, Rescue 911 or whatever that show he did for so many years. Shatner was on the verge of a renaissance. 77, he was kind of taking whatever work would come his way. But I think he looked good in this movie. And um, I thought he actually did rather well. Comparing it to like two of his other big horror movies, uh, Incubus and Devil's Reign, I think he does a really good job as the lead in this one as Rack. Hanson. Yeah, he he is really good. It, it, his, it suits his personality. I think I imagine a lot of the way this character was is William Shatner. So I, I thought that was good. I have a question, though. Is he a cowboy? I mean, that was him riding that horse and twirling that. Lasso. Oh, yeah, that's totally him. I don't know at what point, but clearly when you watch this, I mean, he I know that he's big in horses. Uh, that's his passion and has been for decades competitions and raising horses and he's he's very well known in that medium and so apparently i thought it was something maybe a little more recent but yeah apparently at least back in the 70s he had uh, a passion for it yeah i you know cowboy i don't know cowboy but well certainly anyone that can ride a horse i call it absolutely yeah (laughs) and in fact that's a big reason why in star trek generations there's this scene where Picard and Kirk are on horses. That was that was Shatner's request that that be included in the in the in the script because he wanted to be able to to kind of highlight that. And I think if I remember correctly, they had established that with Picard as well in an episode of Next Generation too. I think they were everyone was leaving the ship, and he was going to go planet side and ride a horse or something. He had a saddle with him. And I remember correctly. And then like people came on board the ship and they were going to hijack it and he gets stuck on the ship and, and never gets a chance to ride, ride the horse. But I think they had kind of done that. And so they wanted to kind of follow up on that and Shatner's ability to ride a horse. It was just kind of natural that the two of them featured that scene together. You know, what else Shatner has a way with besides horses, the women. I was going to say the ladies. Uh, this is an odd relationship in this movie. I mean, his dead brother's wife, he like has a thing. For, she definitely has a thing for him. He has a thing for her, but he won't act on it because of his dead brother. Yeah. Yet at the very beginning, after he was riding the horse, they sort of take a tumble and then he's rough with her. He like pushes her away. But then the new girl, the scientist professor, 
doctor comes to town. He's on her immediately. Yeah, that moment at the beginning where he's he's riding with his, well, no longer sister-in-law, but former sister-in-law, Terry, played by his real-life wife, Marcy Lafferty, at the time. She was actually wife number two out of his four wives. And it's the one he was married to the longest. He was married to her from 73 to 96. So she pops up in some things like she plays in Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, She's also in numerous episodes of TJ Hooker. So he would use her during this time period. It's when she calls him his brother's name. Right. Yeah. Is when he like pushes her away. But yeah, there's clearly something there. and And you think maybe given a little more time, he might be, you know, okay with it. But then so then he's clearly got the thing for Diane Ashley and brings her to the house, you know, and I thought, Oh dude, you know, it's like, clearly you, you, you have feelings for Terry and clearly, you know, she has feelings, but yeah, let's go ahead and bring your latest conquest. Yeah. That was kind of tacky. But I like the way that was all revealed. You learn that through the course of the movie. It's not all up front. So that had some layers, added some layers to the movie. I did have to laugh, though, that the scene, yeah, where Rack and Diane are, are finally at dinner, you know, she kind of resisted his his advances until, like, he runs her off the road and then gets out of the car. And all of a sudden, she's like, oh, you know, it's like, Mr. Man, you know, and then <laughs> he, he comes along and, like, picks her up and throws her in the car. Nobody drives my car. Well, apparently he does. Yeah, I thought that was funny. But then at the dinner scene, you know, he, he talks about his brother and it's like, it's that moment where he says, yeah, my brother was killed in Nam," And then he looks off to the right. And I almost expected to hear that memory from Airplane when he would have the flashbacks, you know, it's like I had that, you know, like music. <laughs> it's like, kind of like, it's like it, it was a pretty cheesy moment, you know, but something that popped up in movies a lot around this time on into the 80s, of course, First Blood, because you did have a lot of vets coming, coming back or a lot of people had lost people within the, you know, cause where it was only a few years removed from Vietnam at this point. So that was still very, very fresh that those kind of throwaway lines actually were pretty common for the time. You said rack and Diane, wasn't that a song by John Mellencamp? <laughs> was it John Mellencamp, John Cougar or John Cougar Mellencamp? Or John Camp Cougar Mellon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's a Saturday night live bit. I couldn't have made that up myself. My That's too brilliant. About Rack and Okay. That's going to be a blurb on here somewhere. Yeah. So Tiffany Bowling plays Diane Ashley. And, you know, essentially she got the part because nobody else wanted to play with spiders. They had a hard time finding a woman who was willing to touch spiders and have spiders all over them. Understandably so even though tarantulas look horrible, but they're not poisonous. Mm. Their bites can hurt. Well, Uh, Rich, when I was little, one of my friends told me that tarantulas spit poison. And to this day, I believe that that's what they do. And don't tell me they're not dangerous. So here's the thing. My stepson actually has a couple of tarantulas. (laughs) One of them got out and pushed the top out. And I said, so you have a tarantula roaming the house? He says, no. No, I found it. He was like, it was like crawling across the, the living room floor. And I'm like, I remember when he told me that story, I thought of Kingdom of the Spider. Yeah, no, because at first I said, well, I'm not visiting your house, you know, anytime soon. And a snake got out too. It's like, 
in this and he, <laughs> I, you know, he, he loves creatures. Right. And I, that's, you know, me and like, I, I'm okay with spiders and snakes as long as they're not on me. And as long as they're like in a case or whatever, but his snake got out once and he found it one morning and it crawled up underneath his pillow and then like, so he puts his hand under his pillow and is like, well, that feels strange. And it was a snake. And I was a teenager. I had I woke up one morning at a basement bedroom and I, when I stepped off the bed and my feet onto the ground and landed on a snake, a snake had crawled in our basement, probably up from the sewer somehow. You talk about waking up and, and yeah, that was probably the first time I yelled out a, a, my, my 10 year old girl scream. <laughs> I was like, good Lord. So Tiffany Bowling, she she loved spiders. In fact, she played the spider lady in an episode of Electra Woman and Dinah Girl. Hmm. So she had no problem with spiders. That scene where she's, oh, hello there. And she's like, the spider's crawling over her hand. No problem with that at all. So that's essentially why she got the part. She didn't have a lot of other acting credits, a lot of TV work. Uh, she was in The Sixth Sense with Gary Collins. She was willing to do the sequel. In fact, when they started talking about, and I know we'll get to that later, but talking about Kingdom of the Spiders 2, the potential, she was actually like, when she heard they were talking about it, why has nobody called me? She was like more than willing to dive back into that world and 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 do a sequel. She loves she loves her, her tarantulas, apparently. Hmm. Well, good for her. I don't. And one thing about this movie that's so creepy to me, it's not that there's a mass of spiders. Really, we don't see much of that. They're kind of few and far between, but it's just those little scenes with one spider that creep me out. One spider crawling towards somebody. That, that's enough to terrify me. I don't need them in mass quantity. Well, they had a lot of spiders on, on this movie, though. So they had mm. 5,000 spiders. Hmm. They paid $10 for live tarantula. And so all the locals, uh, Camp Verde, Arizona started, you know, hitting out in the desert and they were able to come up with 5,000 of them. So they spent $50,000 of their budget on spiders alone. And the, hmm. the thing is though, they, they did say that they tried to take care and not injure the spiders. And some even went as far as to say that no spiders were injured, but you know they had to be like when some of the cars are rolling and stuff. You know they had to be squishing some of those spiders. But when the film was done, they let the spiders loose out of the desert just outside of town. Townspeople were used to seeing tarantulas, and I was like, I don't know how you'd ever get used to seeing. You're in the garage, and oh, there's a tarantula. I years ago in our first house in Goddard, there was a tarantula in our yard. I don't know how it got in our yard. I lifted up a board and there was a tarantula there the size of what it was probably maybe somebody's pet man i had killed that thing with about 50 wax and it was funny the neighbor on the backside he saw and he came up the old man like so i saw you killing something in the yard he says what'd you get yourself a snake (laughs) not killed a spider spider and i said yeah it was it was a big tarantula yeah he looked Okay, okay. And he walks off thinking, you know, yeah, city folk. Creepy, though, to find that king wandering around the backyard. I I can't imagine I'd ever get used to that. Larger than normal amount of tarantulas in Camp Verde, Arizona. And that's the other thing, too, about them. You you step on a spider, you you squish them, you know, 
if you smash a tarantula, there's a lot of stuff to go spraying out. That's disgusting, too. Yeah. So clearly, you know, like Shatner didn't have a problem with with spiders for the most part. I watched a a 30 minute interview that he did. That was the uh, an extra on the DVD from Shout Factory. He did say that the worst scene that he had, though, was the scene in the basement where all the spiders were all over him because the shirt that he had was kind of like a silk shirt. And the spider claws were going through the shirt, basically. So as they were crawling all over his body, he could feel the little legs mm. moving all over. And he, he said that that got to him. He said he just he couldn't he couldn't deal with that. But now the scene where. The spider was on his face. They did shoot that scene. He, he used like spirit gum or whatever to try to stick the spider to his face. That was his idea. He's mm. like, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's let's stick a spider on my face and it'll make for a great shot. And I don't think anyone got bit on set, but the spider hairs are what make uh, itching powder. Tarantula legs, the, the hair on their legs, that's uh, an ingredient for itching powder. And so that was a big thing is that people were itching and stuff like that. And there's some uh, behind the scenes footage and and you can see the actors sitting there scratching themselves and stuff. It was like, they said all they could do in some scenes not to be itching all over the place because the little hair was like everywhere. That was, they said that was probably the biggest problem, but the, the, they had a handler who also did an interview on, on the DVD and he talks about, you know, how like the different kinds of tarantulas, the ones they used in the movie, you said were docile. It was an interesting little segment because the person he was interviewing, you know, was like touching the spiders and stuff. And then of course, you know, he does bring out one. He says, now this one is one that we're not going to put on you because it's aggressive. And like, as soon as he took off the, the lid, the spider was bigger than what they used in the movie. And it immediately went into attack mode. The front legs went up. Of course they had like, the large South American bird killing tarantula. That's you know, the size of a small dog or whatever that they had that one in there too. Yeah. He said for the most part, the ones in the movie were, were docile. In fact, they were generally fairly still. So they had to like blow air at them to get them to even want to move. Rack seems, uh, I don't want to say immune, but I mean, the little girl, the women, they're running through spiders. They're jumping on them, cover them. How come Shatner can go through and they don't jump on him or move on him? Well, I mean, I mean, eventually yeah. he in the basement they get him, but outside and he lives too. Which uh, you know, I think there was a, a casual reference by Diane that they had like the venom, yeah. anti venom, or whatever, yeah. you know, and that they were able to act quickly. And I was like, well, that didn't seem to help everyone else. I mean, you know, I guess. The pilot, I guess, was getting bit multiple times, and we don't know. He might have lived had he not, like, exploded when the plane went crashing into the gas station, which that scene was actually a real stunt, and Shatner and and, and Bowling were, they were right there next to the fire. That was no stand-ins or whatever, so they were that close to the fire. Yeah, you wouldn't really see that today for the most part. I mean, insurance companies would like, oh, no, we can't do that uh, on a low budget film like this. Yeah, they just like, sure, put our two main stars right next to that exploding, you know, airplane. 
not thinking that, yeah, if you if you kill your two main stars, your movie's done. Did that scene remind you of anything from another movie? I can't think of it. Abominable Dr. Fibes. There's a pilot in a plane and it's rats instead of spiders, but he gets attacked yeah, while he's flying the plane and it crashes. So I had forgot about that. Yeah. Reminded me of that. Yeah, that was a creepy scene with this. I mean, because what would you do, right? You're in, and especially in that plane. Would he not have seen that many spiders, though, when he got into the... Yeah, at that point, what do you do? I mean, it's not like you can jump out of the plane and you'd have to get a composure to go ahead and land the plane to get out. By that point, you've got spiders crawling all over you. Yeah, I probably would have done the same thing. Hmm. For those that haven't seen this, let's explain why are these spiders attacking? What's going on? Well, now, if you would talk to Carla, she would say there's no explanation. Yeah, you got to kind of throw science out the window a little bit. Essentially, these spiders are like what they say, like 600 miles away from where they're supposed to be. And it's essentially right. It's the, the DDT. They mentioned that several times that the pesticides have, have basically made these spiders immune to the pesticides and it's kind of turned them into they're aggressive and they're cooperating and they're working together and they're forming an army. I think 1977, this is right in the peak of animals run amok, you know? So that's, that's exactly where this is, you know, other movies of the day, animals were retaliating. Nature was retaliating. Mankind is a pestilence and, once again, we was like, yeah, let's go ahead and use DDT on, on all these creatures and not thinking about the effects that it had. Of course, DDT has been outlawed, uh, and it's something that you can't, can't do anymore because of the, of, the, of the harm to the atmosphere that it was doing. There's a little bit of pseudoscience in there that pesticides are obviously can have effect. Now, would spiders be able to form a resilience Probably not, but who knows? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure it's not scientifically accurate, but it makes sense. The DDT has killed off their food, so they're hungry and they're angry. They're moving somewhere where they can get food. That makes sense. It's not like some plots that just don't even make sense. To me, it's logical, whether it's factual. It works, I think. It explains why they're doing that. I've seen this many, many times, uh, and I love it, by the way. But I, I picked up something I'd never picked up before. They find a body and it's wrapped in a cocoon. Well, why is that? Well, that's because they're preserving their food until they can eat it. When you think of the very ending and, and what happens, it just dawned on me this time that they have like, spoiler alert, I guess, they've preserved that whole town to be their food. I never had put two and two together on that. I thought that was interesting. I do think, yeah, there, there's there's certain things about this movie that I would say make sense. If you're going to go with the idea of like, you know, a bit of a mutation that's happened, it does kind of feed into the the myth that, you know, tarantulas are poisonous, right? And, and, and deadly. And so you would think, okay, even if they were somehow resilient and somehow cooperating and working as like, how would that have made them more venomous than they really are? So that was a bit of stretching the truth a little bit. If you had a movie without venomous spiders, then you don't have much of a movie. You got to go with the flow. And it worked for me. I mean, it's I've seen this movie 
numerous times over the years. This this is something that I always it's always kind of a go back to me because I love the movie. I mean, yeah, it's got it's Shatner kind of draws me to it. I've always enjoyed the film. I've always found it fun, quick paced. 90 minute movie never drags really at any point. I mean, once it gets going, it's just like bang, bang, bang. I mean, stuff is always kind of happening and it builds up to the point where you have the, uh, the climax. And then of course, everything kind of goes absolutely crazy in the, in the climax. I mean, the town goes from, from normal to total pandemonium in, in like record time. Yeah. And like, where did all those people come from? All the scenes up to that point, it's like a deserted ghost town, you know, it, there aren't very many people in the diner, no one walking around. All of a sudden it's chaos. There are people bumping into each other because there are so they're, many people. Maybe they're there because they're preparing for the fair or whatever. Yes, which brings up, we have to mention the Jaws-like subplot. You know, there's totally. a big event yeah. coming up and they don't want to disrupt it. It brings money to the town. Um, yeah, the mayor and the mayor is like, yeah, you know, we 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 gotta have gotta have it. You know, you gotta solve this problem. And tells you know, Rack Hansen at one point, well, you know, if 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 we have to quarantine, he says keep that keep that quiet, keep it to yourself. Don't want that getting out. Clearly inspired by Jaws, because you know, coming just you know two years after Jaws, so that that's clearly inspiration there. The thing I like the very most about this movie is. It's a survival story. At the end, they're just trying to survive. They're not trying to figure out, okay, what can we come up with to destroy them? There's no science people working in the lab and like a race against time to destroy them. It's just they're trying to survive. And I really, really like that because that's not the norm. Usually the forward motion of the plot is how are we going to prevent this? How are we going to stop it? How are we going to kill them? I mean, there's elements of that, but the main focus is they just want to get through the night. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for me, I keep saying, and of course I know where the end game is, but I'm like, y'all need to be moving quicker to get out of there. You know, you're all just kind of like, when you got the sheriff comes and leaves, I mean, I'm like, I'm thinking when he picked up the niece, I guess, right? Yeah, Linda Hansen, And, you know, how quickly the spiders got into to his truck. For starters, I'm like, you didn't examine the truck enough because there could have been spiders under the seat. I wouldn't have been as casual and and I would have even let the girl take a nap. I, I'd have been like, we need to get going and get out of here and get out of the area and get some help. And that's really interesting. They put that little girl in danger several times. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not just once. It's at least three times that fear of hurting or killing a child you know let's do it three times i would love to know if the so the actress was natasha ryan natasha natasha you recognized her didn't you i did not she plays amy she plays the little girl in the amityville horror oh i'll be darned she didn't have a long career apparently she aged out and and left hollywood tv work she's also in the six million dollar man the bionic christmas carol episode I'm thinking, you know, was she scarred for life from spiders? I'd love to know. Or did she just find the whole experience fun? I you always wonder about that. You know, you get young actors who are put into crazy situations. You know, do they, are they just very smart for the rage? And do they know that this is just fake? This movie is like, well, that's not fake. Some of the spiders were, and you could tell in some scenes, you know, but most of them were real. 
I thought this was interesting in the city town uh, or the city town, the, the, uh, <laughs> the, the city, the town scenes, good night of Camp Verde. So there's a lot of fake spiders in, in, in that there's, there's real, but there's fake because the shots were quick enough, right? You just needed to see spiders. They actually painted fake spiders on the buildings to make it look like, you know, there were more spiders and stuff on, on, on the, on the walls and stuff. So when they finished the filming, they did like repaint the buildings, but they used like just a very quick coat of paint. And apparently for years after you could see fake spiders on walls. And of course, Camp Verde still, this is their one claim to fame. You can still go to their, their city website and yep, this is where Kingdom of the Spiders was filmed. By God, they're they're going to milk that for as long as it's worth. Uh, and I think they did. They even did like a some type of reunion thing there a few years, not too long ago, I don't think. And it does go. I mean, it just escalates really quickly, right? I mean, yeah. it's like when the, when the spiders, you know, kicking into full gear. Bam! You know, Mabel, the phone operator, is is <laughs> in a cocoon and. I've seen enough movies to know that if I drive into a downtown and I'm like seeing mobs of people, I'm getting my car out and backed out because it never ends well. Right. As like, as soon as I see any type of mob situation, what time to back up and I wish you well, I'm going to go get some help. You mentioned moving a little faster with some more urgency. I guess it's early enough that the situation really isn't, in crisis mode, but yet they know there are these dangerous spiders and that they've killed animals. Let's go on a picnic. That seemed kind of odd to me. I mean, it did. It did. I, I, I don't know. I just, I think that after, after you see like a plane crash and you see that your sister-in-law has been consumed by spiders and you, and it's at that point to me, I'm like, I'm not going about life as normal at that point. I mean, that's, you're finding like people being bitten alive and you've got spiders crawling everywhere. It's like, no, now it's time to leave town. But again, we're a lot smarter because we've seen all these movies yeah. and, and we know if we're ever placed in these crazy situations, it's time to leave. The other boneheaded thing I think they do is at, towards the end when they're trapped in the house and the, they're hot because the air is not coming out and the vents closed. You know, if you open that vent, spiders are going to come pouring out of there. Why yeah. in the heck do they open that vent? Yeah. The one scene in the kitchen where they're coming through the vent and just dropping down. Ugh, that's That was a creepy scene. I just dawned on me. I don't know if it sounds like we're dogging on this or not. We're laughing with it, not at it. I mean, this is a B movie through and through. And what is it we love about B movies? It's these funny little things that yeah. they don't affect the overall movie or the enjoyment, but they sort of explain why it's so much fun. So I absolutely love this movie. They're, these aren't criticisms. They're just oh, no. fun things that I'm pointing out. And I, I just, I don't know, it dawned on me for a minute as we were talking about these silly things that happened. Doesn't mean that I don't like the movie. Oh, I love the movie. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. There are times when silly things like this, we, we may not like them, or I may not like the movie, but there's something else going on. You know, it's like whether it's the cast or script or whatever. 
And, and so we'll point out silly things it's like, well, this, this, and this, and we, you know, this, this is really a bad movie. This thing, it's like little things like this can either add to elements that are breaking a movie and making it bad, or can just add to the overall fun. And you're like, you got to sit back and think, this is a fun movie. Here's lots of quirky things, but yet I still love the heck out of me. I can sit here and, and how many ever times I've seen this and I consider and say, you know, I feel like I want to stand up. It's like, y'all need to get out of there. You know, don't get in the plane. All of those things have no effect on the fact that angry spiders are wrapping people up in cocoons to eat them later. That's all I need. I don't care about the silly little things that happen. No, all the silly stuff, they they don't deter from, from the overall fun of the movie. This is Saturday afternoon matinee fair or Saturday night creature feature fair. I mean, this is this perfect stuff. And like I said, it moves along at a quick pace. It doesn't drag. You've got, you got a good cast. You got some familiar faces. You know, you got Woody Strode who plays Walter Colby. Uh, Woody Strode is, is a well-known character actor. He was in the 10 commandments, Tarzan's fight for life, Tarzan's three challenges, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Uh, he was in the Batman TV show, a well-known actor, very big, very powerful individual lived to be a, a nice age of, of 80. Uh, he died in 94. And you got like some good supporting cast. I mean, we talked about the uh, the actress who played Linda Hansen. I think uh, familiar, again, if you've seen the Amityville Horror, I, you know, I recognized her. The innkeeper, the, the, the cabin keeper, <laughs> um, Emma Washburn, played by Lou Dressler. Lots of TV work, and I'm just like, I didn't know her by name, but I knew her by face. I'd seen her in other TV shows. She's a character actress. Uh, I probably recognized her from Kolchak, The Night Stalker, having just recently finished up that series. Altavise Davis played Birch Colby. Now, Altavise, she got an introducing credit, but this is actually her third film, and she only did eight uh, appearances she did a Charlie's Angels episode. She did Can't Stop the Music in 1980. That's a rough musical to make it through. Uh, Valerie Perrine and the Village People. But she was actually married to Sammy Davis Jr. It was his uh, second or third wife, I believe. But it was the one that was married to him the longest. She was wanting to become an actress at this point. She outlived Sammy. She, she died in 2009 at the age of 65 which is still a young age. They had some good supporting cast. And of course, some other familiar faces pop up in the movie as well. I didn't write down the actor's name, but the guy who plays the uh, gas station attendant, again, a character actor. I've seen him on other things. Fairly certain I've seen the, the actor who played the pilot. I've seen him in a few other things as well. Definitely some familiar faces. And when you have that in a movie, and you start recognizing that just kind of makes it fun, right? It's like, oh, I know that person. I know that person. Character actors, they're overlooked, right? I mean, because they're not name actors or actresses. Yet, you recognize them for their face. Nine times out of ten, they're solid actors. They're in the background. They're, they're, they're adding to a scene. They're not a lead character, obviously. But it's the believability that you get from these supporting characters that will help the overall film. Oftentimes the, the big stars, the big writers, the big directors are the ones who get all the accolades, but 
It's all the other people involved that make it a success as well. The people from the production aspect, the people in the background, you know, having the one or two lines that can make a film stand out or can make a scene painful to make it through. If you've got somebody who's not a good actor, actress, and you're like, oh, they, that's a horrible scene because that's a horrible, you know, they, can't, they can't act to save their life. And so I think when you got a production like this, even though it was low budget, you had a, a solid group of people that seemed to make it all work and make it all believable, even though it shouldn't have been, but it was. And, and so absolutely adds to the overall fun factor for me. Now, you mentioned the character Emma Washburn. She sort of is pining for the sheriff or they had a history or something. That's just a little detail that's thrown in. This makes me think that the depth or characterization or anything there may be from this movie probably comes from the writers. Interesting that the Richard Robinson and Alan Kalu, Richard Robinson doesn't have very many credits. The other notable one is Piranha. Yeah. Uh, and then Alan Kalu has a lot, a lot of TV, but I see other, I see Six Million Dollar Man and things like that. So I think they did a great job writing the screenplay. What do you know about the director, John Bud Cardos? Well, I wanted to, to add, so you've also got a couple of other writers there, The this because there was a story by a Jeffrey Sneller and a Stephen Lodge, which, so Stephen Lodge, he was a writer, he was a director, he was in the costume department, never did anything big, but seemed to be doing everything. Interesting group of writers there that not a lot of credits to their name. I mean, Alan Kalu, you wonder, because he had lots of TV, that maybe he was the most involved or maybe might have polished up the script more because he it seems like he has the most experience out of the four. So John Bud Cardos kind of did a little bit of everything. He did, he did some directing, but he only directed 10 films. The Day Time Ended with Jim Davis is a movie that I, I remember seeing back in the day. That movie kind of made the rounds in the 80s after Jim Davis got popular as Jock Ewing on, on Dallas. It's a low-budget sci-fi flick. Aliens Plaguing a Family or something, I remember. Yeah, Bud Cardos was an actor. He was uh, he was also a production manager. He was numerous transportation department credits. Kind of I wonder different. if that's stunts because it, he also has a lot of credits as as stunts. But if you look under those transportation departments, he's always driver, driver, driver. Well, I take that back. I assume it's on screen driving if there's a stunt, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's driving actors around. I don't know. What do you think? I guess, I guess it could be either. Of course, everybody gets a credit now uh, on films. I could bring donuts to a set, you know, one day and I'll be listed as catering. It's like, no, no, I just, I stopped by and got donuts at, at the, at the Seven Eleven. Yeah, I'll be darned. If you look, I'm sorry to be clicking through IMDb while we're talking additional crew he was the bird wrangler in Psycho and the Birds. Huh. Isn't that interesting? I, I, you know, this name is familiar to me. I, I'm sure it's popped up here and there, but this guy, there's got to be a story there. The last thing I want to talk about is the music. But before we go there, is there anything else you want to say about it? So there was a talk of a sequel, Kingdom of the Spiders 2, original mm, title. Interesting. Um, Shatter was behind it. He had an idea 
for uh, a script, apparently, that Rack Hansen somehow survived. Apparently went bonkers after the experience and was like in some insane asylum and but was being tortured because there were scientists that were apparently wanting to somehow I guess like weaponize the spiders or something and wanted to know you know what he knew about it or some nonsense like that uh it never really got very far and then there was talk just as recently as a as a few years ago of a kingdom of the spiders 2 and 3d and and they were going to, you know, attempt to do a, another sequel again. Shatner, I don't think, was involved with that. And it doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. I think, you know, at this point, we've had other spider movies since yeah. then. I had to think like arachnophobia had to have been maybe inspired a little bit. A different movie, but there's some similarities in certain sure. scenes and stuff. Of course, many years after that, but uh, Eight-Legged Freaks. Have you ever seen that one? Mm-hmm some similarities as far as like nobody believing you know and then of course then there's these giant but of course then of course that's a lot of like huge giant jumping spiders that are in itself pretty scary the only other little tidbit i had was was the name of a couple people who auditioned uh but were turned down or turned down the role so apparently donna mills was up for the lead but she didn't like spiders uh so this would have been pre knots landing but the lead was offered to Bo Svensson, hmm. who I think would have been interesting. He probably could have pulled off the lead uh, in a different way. He turned down the role, and I'm only going to assume it's because of of the spiders, because he would have he was taking a lot of other movies like this at this time. So I can only imagine that he didn't want to work with the spiders. Hmm. Tell us about the music. Well, first of all, it's an odd mix. And it's just one of my notes. I didn't really like that. I mean, the country music I get, it's not my favorite genre, but I it's fine. So there's a couple of like actual songs and we'll talk more about the title song in a minute. But there's that. Then there's the score, which is pretty good at sometimes. It's like suspenseful and scary when it needs to be. But then there are like scenes that have like elevator music, like da, 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 everything's fine and calm. It just, it's an odd mix. I don't think altogether it worked very well. So that, that was just kind of odd, but that title song, and I know you've got to tell us uh, more about it, but it's over the credits. And I think at the end credits too, peace, yeah. peaceful Verde Valley, Verde. Bleh. Tell us about the, the title song <laughs> and say its name correctly. Peaceful Verde Valley. Yeah. Actually, I think he did two songs. Uh, I think there was another song that played on the radio briefly Mm -hmm. that didn't get as much time. Dorsey Burnett. Dorsey Burnett, actually, I I just assumed it was a nobody, right, that sang a song and it was slapped into the movie. But no, Dorsey Burnett actually was fairly well known at the time. He was an American rockabilly singer. He had, a, you know, a successful career. I mean, he was part of the, uh, I think they called themselves the the Rock and Roll Trio. He was on American Bandstand and, and Steve Allen's Tonight Show and appeared uh, at Madison Square Garden. So, I mean, he, he was, he kind of had a 15 seconds of fame there, but then he uh, teamed up with his younger brother, uh, Johnny Burnett, well, Johnny Burnett and Paul Burleson were, were part of the rock and roll trio, but then they were the Burnett brothers for a while. 
actually had some hits. He had quite a few albums between 1960, he had a, a pop hit in 1960. He had a pop hit in 1960. There was a tall oak tree hit like number 23 on the chart. Uh, then he, he got into country music in the early 70s. He was a born-again Christian and, and turned to country and had quite a few top 40 hits on the country
but then he had Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon, which was from what movie? Spy Who Loved Me. Excellent. Yes. Uh, we had How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees. So we were kind of in the disco era. Saturday Night uh, Fever. One of my favorite songs. I love Firefall. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> knows Firefall, but few people do out there. And I love Just Remember I Love You. A lot of songs, they had some some hits. And uh, a particular song that I, I have a funny story with, Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue by Crystal Gale, which is right up there with Peaceful Verde Valley. <laughs> it was number five in November of 77. So it would have come out in the late summer time frame, you know, by the time it rose, rises the charts. And we were on vacation in, in 1977. I'm trying to think from the time frame, you know, we might have been on our trip to, we did a trip to California in the fall. And I think it was maybe the fall of 77. I just remember being on a vacation and every time the radio was on, it's like, don't it make my brown, drove my parents nuts. My, <laughs> my dad hated the song. I grew to kind of, you know, you, you know how radio stations get, they play a song every hour on the hour when it's new. They just kind of, it reaches the point where you're like, you don't want to hear the song ever again. Big hit for Crystal Gale in 1977. Not a song that gets too much airplay in, in 2021. But those were some of the big musical hits of November 1977. Well, you want to wrap it up? Where can people find Kingdom of the Spiders if they have not seen it? Or if they want to watch it again, like we have many, many times. It's had a variety of DVD releases over the years. I think one of the first was from Good Times Home Video. Remember Good Times? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a uh, a nice DVD copy from uh, Shout Factory that I'm fairly certain is out of print. It has a Blu-ray release from Code Red, and it's about $20. I don't know if it has the extras from Shout Factory. I would, I don't know. Sometimes Shout Factory is weird about that stuff. You can find it. It's got a lot of different releases. It's on Amazon Prime, but I think it's the Rift Tracks version. From a streaming perspective, you might have a little harder time finding it, but it's you can find it. It's out there, with, and it's not going to break the bank. Something that I uh, highly recommend, two thumbs up. I love this movie, no matter how many times I, I've seen it, and I will see it again, hopefully many other times in years to come. Yep, me too. Lots of fun. Well, we talked about that for a long time. I need another trip to the snack bar. I'm starving. I'm you know starving. what, though? I always go to the snack bar. Why don't you go to the snack I bar? I was just thinking that. <laughs> I, I sit here in the car, and I'm like, I'm going to let you sit, and I'm going to go. So I know that I'm getting myself, because I'm starving. I'm going to get myself a hot dog. I'm going to get myself some, some nachos, and I'm going to get myself a box of uh, sugar babies because Richard's teeth in 1977 were, were just ripe for sugar babies. <laughs> and I'm going to get myself a Coke. And of course that's, that's real Coke in 1977 with, I think it still had the sugar cane sugar in it. Oh, give me some word. of my regulars, popcorn, no butter, Twizzlers and Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper, Twizzlers, and, and, and all the other stuff. I'm going to come back with a cart full of food as we dive into our third movie. We're now just one minute away from the beginning of our next feature. 
For your convenience, our refreshment stand will remain open after the feature begins, so you still have time to add to the fun of watching the movie. Before we begin our next feature, we'd like to remind you to replace your speaker before leaving the theater. If it is accidentally damaged, please notify someone at the refreshment stand. Again, thank you for coming out to the drive-in tonight. As you leave, please drive carefully and come back soon. Nightmares are dreams perverted. I've told them here it wasn't a nightmare, but they don't believe me. They nod and make little notes in my file. Not far from here, there's a small town on the coast. They used to call it New Bethlehem, but they changed the name to Point Dune after the moon turned blood red. One Dune doesn't look any different than a thousand other neon stucco towns. But what happened there? What they did to me? What they're doing now? They're coming here. They're waiting at the edge of the city. They're peering around buildings at night. And they're waiting. They're waiting for you. And they'll take you one by one, and no one will hear you scream. No one will hear you scream! We are back in our next movie as we eat these snacks. I'll be eating while you're talking, and you eat while I'm talking. <laughs> Messiah of Evil, also, like you mentioned, known by several other names. Tonight, we saw it as Night of the Damned. 1973 was released on April 23rd, 1973 in L.A. Everything about this the story of the making of this is interesting, and we're going to go into that, but let's just pause that for now. It was made by uh, VM Productions and released by International Cine Film Corps was written and directed by Willard Hayek and Gloria Katz. Richard, want to give a quick recap before we dig in? What did you think yeah. about it? Yeah, this is this is an interesting flick. And, and so it had a variety of, of re-releases. And yeah, we saw it as, as Nine of the Damned here in 1977. At some point, it was a horrible title. Dead People was a title that it was known under. As, as we're here in 1977, at some point in the next year, this movie got released as Revenge of the Screaming Dead in what was a boneheaded marketing plan. Well, don't don't go too far into that because that's yeah, part of my story. This is, so we're seeing it in, in a, I think, in a random, probably drive-in re-release under this title, Night of the Damned. And I don't know what, what if this that title works better or Messiah of Evil. Messiah of Evil sounds, I think, a lot better. 
once you start to know some of the background of the movie. So the movie, and this isn't my first time seeing it. I think I saw this movie when Grindhouse came out because Grindhouse had a site, if you recall, they had a pretty cool website that you could make your own movie trailers. Hmm. And they had this thing where you they had all they had clips from Grindhouse, but they had like clips from other random 70s grindhouse exploitation flicks. And so you could they had this like program where you could like put four or five, six clips together and could make your own crazy trailer of I spent hours on that site just creating my own crazy trailer. And so the scene with with the character of Charlie, played by uh, Elijah Cook Jr., where he's talking about, you know, my mother almost fed me to the chickens. That was one of the clips. And that fascinated me. I was like, what is this from? And so in doing some research, I found that it was from Messiah of Evil. And I sought the movie out because I was like, I got to see this movie. And admittedly, he's only in really two scenes in the movie. Bizarre sequence there. The first time I saw the movie, it was just this weird, trippy film. Yet I, I, I dug it. This is a weird flick, but really appreciate what they were trying to do here. I haven't seen it since, actually. And so this this was my first time seeing it since then. And it's uh, I've seen bits and pieces of it over the years. It pops up on the Film Detective channel because it's public domain for the most part. I enjoy this one, and I probably was paying more attention this time than I was the previous time I saw it. So I was really trying to focus in on the story and the script and trying to make sense of some of the plot points. And while I do think there's some plot holes periodically throughout the film, some of it I think probably has more to do with the production, the the editing process of the film. But I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it. it. It's a weird, different flick and one that probably deserves a little more love than it gets. I think it tends to pop up on a lot of horror host schedules because it's public domain and, and so people throw it out there. That said, though, it's it's a movie that probably deserves to get a little bit more recognition because there, there's a lot going on in this movie. and There's some cool stuff, and especially if you think the time period in which it was made, early 70s, we're only five years, and actually when this was filmed, it was filmed in 71, so it was only three years removed from Night of the Living Dead. And there's some definite inspirations from that movie and some of the scenes in this because you're you're seeing, I guess, the undead uh, in this movie, I guess. Um, but they're definitely doing some Night of the Living Dead zombie-esque actions at points in the movie. I don't know. I, I, I dug it. What about you? Yeah, so I absolutely love this movie. And I'm just biting my tongue as you're saying all of these things because... I want to take quite a bit of time and go through the story of how this was made. First of all, let me summarize it first. If you're looking for any plot or plot points, that's your first mistake. <laughs> it's it's a dream like atmosphere. Yeah, it is. Plot is secondary, and that's intentional. And and I'll tell you about that. Um, but I love this movie. I don't know why I watched it for the first time not too long ago, but it's one of those few movies that I watched it immediately went to my computer and ordered the Blu-ray. So I ordered it. It's from Code Red, I believe. And 
This time I watched it with the commentary, and that's how I learned so much about the making of this movie. The writers, directors, Willard Hayek and Gloria Katz, they were basically film students. They had just graduated UCLA. Their cronies are George Lucas. And I have to admit, listening to this commentary, he, Willard Hayek, is a little bit pretentious. He's kind of one of those people that Marty Scorsese, you know, and Bobby De Niro, you know, it's like (laughs) just so casually. And he, some of his answers, and you'll see as I go through this, are a little bit pretentious. Gloria seems nice. She doesn't talk as much, but she pipes in now and then. She helps him fill in some of the memories of the things he didn't remember. It's, it's a very interesting commentary, very entertaining. And their claims to fame, they haven't done a whole lot of stuff over a long period of time, but big stuff, American Graffiti, they wrote Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and then Howard the Duck. I knew that was coming. So I, and I don't, yeah, I, well, I'm not even going to go there. Let's talk about Messiah of Evil. Willard worked at American International Pictures, so he knew Roger Corman. He said he worked as a reader, so I assume he read scripts. Maybe he didn't really explain what that was, but here's where he is a little bit uh, like an unreliable source because he claims he rewrote a Hammer film. Well, number one, I don't think Hammer had anything to do with American International. I'm sure he's thinking of something else. Then he turns around and says he thinks it was Witchfinder General. Well, that wasn't a Hammer film. And he can't really remember what movie it was he rewrote. I can't find it anywhere. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. To not be able to remember is one thing. And then to claim it's something like a Hammer film or Witchfinder General is... That's a big claim. It, but, you know, if he was reading, it's that's like so. Like, it, it, was it a? He was given a script, and it's like, what do you think of this? And and yes, well, I think we should do this, this, and this. And then that may be his like. Well, I, I rewrote elements of the script. You know, if, if he if he's going the route of Marty and and yeah, yeah. overinflating just a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Interesting fact, his college roommate was Curtis Hansen, who uh, went on to write the Dunwich Horror in the 70s, then The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, and then L.A. Confidential, you know, many years later, which L.A. Confidential is a fantastic movie. So these two are fresh out of film school. They're friends with George Lucas. George Lucas was making THX 1138, and it was really bringing him down because it was such a serious downer of a movie and he wanted to make something lighter he had the interest in the cars and the nostalgia and all that so willard and gloria wrote a first treatment for american graffiti that was great so they did a second longer treatment and the next thing would have been to finish the screenplay well about that time willard and gloria had agents And they gave him a phone call and said there were these rich kids in texas that wanted to finance a movie but it had to be a horror film. They jumped at the chance. Here, here they are fresh out of film school to have a movie financed. You know, they, they jumped on it. They had to call George Lucas. He was in Europe showing THX 1138 at some film festival. And they, you know, they told him, hey, they, they had the money to make their own movie. They talk about at that time, if you got that opportunity, you took it. And like George Lucas had to understand, like he would have done the same thing if that had happened to him. They went off to make this horror movie. They think the budget was about 100,000, but they only got 80,000 because one of the financiers in Texas used 20,000 to put a new roof on his house. 
<laughs> so they're going in with a low budget to start with. Not a lot of pre-production because they're like worried that the money's going to run out. So they're like doing it as fast as they can. They don't want to waste a lot of time getting ready to make it. Like you said, it was shot in 1971. They said over about two months, but that they're going to contradict themselves later. And this basically was a student film, but they were using, they said, a big camera. So, you know, they had better equipment, but it was basically a student film. They used something called technoscope, which I wasn't familiar with. Basically, it has to do with the film because film was very expensive and they got like twice as much film for the money because of this particular style of camera they were using that they called technoscope. The making of it sounds great. They talked about how it was a low budget film. And when you're doing a low budget film, everyone just kind of chips in and helps outdo a little bit of everything. You're not stuck in the role that you have uh, in the credits. It, It was not a union film. However, they did use actors from the Screen Actors Guild. They think they paid them probably their base required pay. And, and that was about it. At this time, the movie was called Blood Virgin. But they were having trouble getting actors because of that name. It sound, They said it sounded like a porn film. The film was actually shot under the title The Second Coming. And this is actually the subtitle on the Blu-ray. It says Messiah of Evil, The Second Coming. Didn't have much money at all to dress the sets. So I, I thought this was, was really interesting. Throughout the movie, they're pointing out things like, they said, oh, those were our wedding dishes. And like the Mercedes was his father's car. And Gloria had knitted that afghan that was used. And the paintings, the murals, which play a big part in the story, that was actually a place that Gloria's college roommate where she lived or worked or or something. So all, you know, they, like I said, everyone chipped in kind of seat of your pants, whatever we've got, let's do it. Here's where they said they were still working on it in 1972. Then they started having problems with checks clearing. Apparently Gloria even had to go to court. And there's a funny story she tells about uh, advice she got from her quote attorney was just go into court and tell them, you were crazy. You didn't know what you were doing. I I don't know something, but so there were court troubles and then the money did run out. Now, by this time they had a first cut of the film, but, but that was it. They stole it from Technicolor, took their movie. So then the investors took them to court. Eventually they had to give it back. So they surrendered it to the investors. So the investors basically had to finish it. Now, they didn't do a lot of filming. There was one scene, the very ending epilogue scene was something they filmed because they thought it needed to be tied up, the story. The investors are in that scene. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. They did the titles. They did the music. They did what little editing there was. That was all done by the investors. Basically, it was out of the the filmmaker's hands at this point. And they lost track of it. They, you know, didn't know what was going on. Then they started hearing news about this movie. The investors wanted to release it as Return of the Living Dead. Of course, George Romero sued them. Why wouldn't he? And a a district court in Chicago, you know, ruled, hey, you can't use that name. And that's when they changed the scream of the living dead, which you mentioned earlier. So about this time, since it was out of their hands, they let George Lucas know, hey, 
were available now. And so they finished that screenplay for American Graffiti. Just kind of side note, that's how they are now fully credited for the screenplay of that, which is ironic because eventually when Messiah of Evil got a proper release, it was advertised as from the creators of American Graffiti. It's all like circles around and comes back and is connected. And it's just, I, I think, so interesting. Now, they claim that the first release that they can track and prove that it came out was in 74. And I said earlier it was 73. So kind of fuzzy. Who really knows? And like you said, with the different names and all of that, um, you know, who knows? Uh, so that is the history. That is how this movie came to be made. I, and yeah. Uh, so circling back, you know, it had to be a horror film. Well, they were not horror fans. They claim they never saw Night of the Living Dead. They claim they never saw Carnival of Souls, which this also evokes. Let's scare Jessica to death. That came out about the time they were making this. All of these similar movies they claim to have no knowledge of. Since then, Willard says he has seen Night of the Living Dead, but he really can't remember when. And then Gloria says she's never seen it. They say this. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bullshit on that. That's like no. Come on. Well, I don't know. They say there's like this cosmic shared thing. Like, how do you end up with the movie like Armageddon and Deep Impact at the same time? You know, being made independently. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. It's kind. I'm skeptical. Very skeptical. They say the the reason the movie is so odd is unusual is because they did not know how to make a horror film. In fact. They were more influenced coming out of film school, really, by art films, late 60s art films. And there are, I, I don't get these references, but everything from the main character's name, Arietti, is supposedly from some French art film. And these scenes they created were to recreate scenes from art films, not horror films. So that kind of uh, explains. Here we're getting into why the story doesn't really make sense. They never had any interest in the story, the relationship of the characters. They never figured out a backstory. Why are the people like this? They don't really know if they're zombies or they're ghouls. In their mind, zombies were like the, the voodoo rituals. That's what created zombies. And so they call them more of like ghouls because they think ghouls eat people. The only thing they knew about these monsters were that they weren't very happy people and they liked to eat other people. When the one of the main characters is starting to, his nose is bleeding at the end, Willard piped up and said, oh, see, now he's starting to get whatever it is all the others got. They don't know. They don't have any idea what's going on. Gosh. The most concrete thing they said, which actually makes a lot of sense to me, is that these ghouls, are under the spell of this title, Messiah. And that sort of makes sense to me, because to me, the story is, in ancient times, there was this character that put people under his spell, and he always said he was going to return. And, you know, that's what's happening in this movie, is they're preparing for his return. They're preparing for the blood-red moon. People are changing. They're, they are under his spell. That's as much of a story as I get out of it. They did intend it to be sort of Lovecraftian. He was a fan of Lovecraft. There's some elements, yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. Yeah. 
And and so since this movie's come out, I mean, it has become, you know, a, a thing. You're right. It hasn't gotten as much love, but it has gotten some love. Interestingly, it's on the marquee in, in, in Woody Allen's Annie Hall that's playing in a theater in, in one of those scenes. But anything that, that people are pu- people are putting in there now that it's, you know, an allegory for Vietnam and they see this blue and red color scheme. And when a character smears blue blood on his face and then gets set on fire, they're saying, well, that's a comment on the United States burning the flag because of none of that was intended. And, you know, well, you that, can- that's a classic example of people reading way too much. In- yes, but. I think it speaks to the power of this film that there's even enough there that people put that much thought into it to, to take that out of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you do have to have something there. I I think though, it, it, you know, it's, it's when a movie is when it doesn't, and it doesn't have necessarily a, a traditional or, you know, cohesive presentation when it is kind of like a, a dreamlike sequence of events and it's not, you know, laid out to you in a traditional format when the filmmaker, whether they, they do it intentionally or unintentionally come and make a film that is just a little off kilter. I think that opens the door for viewers to then think, Ooh, we're supposed to interpret. There's something special going on here. And sometimes that is the intent of the filmmaker because they, they've got ideas and they want you to think of ideas. And sometimes it's just that you've got maybe two people that really don't know what they're doing. And the end result was not their intent to do an allegory, but it was the end result was kind of like an, this accidental, almost experimentation that opens the door for people to then think, oh, they want us to think this. They want us to think that. It's like, no, no, they just didn't have a clue what they were doing. But the end result is interesting. And I think that's because of the atmosphere and the mood. There is no doubt this is a creepy movie. It's unsettling. There are a couple of fantastic set pieces. The final scene that the investor shot because they thought the story needed tied up. And it, it, it bookends the movie because it starts. She's in an insane asylum walking down the hall. This is your out sort of for saying it doesn't have a story is that, well, she's insane and she's telling this story as she thinks it happened to her. You know, who knows if it's true or not? Well, the, the book in then is it ends with her back at that insane asylum. So what well, anything that happened in the middle is is fair game. It's possibly a crazy person telling the story. So I think it makes very much sense based on all of this information. Having that background, yeah, it, it, it does put the film in a very, very different light. I think without that information, you can go down one of two paths. You can go yeah. down this. We're supposed to read into everything that's happening yeah. on this film is really being intentional for something else. Or you can sit there and think, this is a movie that just doesn't make any sense. But then when you find out all the behind the scenes, then it's kind of like, okay, now I kind of see where they were going with this and that. I, I really do question, though. <sighs> well, even this. So maybe they didn't see it. But you tell me you're in film school and you've never heard of Carnival of Souls. And, and granted, maybe it also was discovered late. It may have been discovered post well, so the company. I, I but Night of the Living Dead, you've at least heard of in 1971. You would think, but, you know, 
I, I, we're looking at it from modern perspective, whereas admittedly, Carnival of Souls and Night of the Living Dead didn't get wide stream recognition until video, right? Yes, obviously, Night of the Living Dead, people knew it because there wouldn't have been a sequel, Dawn of the Dead, right? Now, of course, everybody knows these films because they've been available on VHS and DVD and Blu-ray and streaming and YouTube. There was a time when there were people that might not have seen or heard of these films. So I'll give them the, I'll give them maybe a chance that maybe they didn't, but I don't know. There's, there's the carnival of souls. Maybe it's just coincidental because of the way that they're inexperienced as filmmakers night of the living dead though, man, there, there's some definite vibes. And I guess, yeah, you were talking about, cosmic influence and maybe maybe it's just happenstance well two years later if the producers are wanting to call it return of the living dead they know about night of the living dead they they clearly do at that point and, I mean, and again i just think in film school you're young you want to make a movie don't you hear about this kid in pittsburgh that somehow raised money and made this movie i mean it just it doesn't seem realistic to me that they had no clue about night of the living dead as much as I love Howard the Duck, <laughs> when you say not having a clue, <laughs> it does kind of go hand. Maybe in that's hand. their uh, normal style. Although in yeah. the Indiana Jones in would be a fluke because that's pretty decent. Well, I mean, the, clearly they had. I mean, because American Graffiti too. I mean, whatever yeah. their involvement was on that. I mean, so clearly they had something. But I think though it's interesting though when you look at their output, right? In, in the big scheme of things virtually nothing i mean he only directed four films and the last being howard the duck i mean that speaks volumes and i think that their writing credits being so limited as well is like if they he's throwing all the names around it's like if you're as big as you say you are you'd have more than four film credits to your name it'd be interesting to, to ask george lucas is like you know, or, or Steven Spielberg, you know, what do you think of these people? Anyway, it, I love, that was a lot of great information. I'll piggyback briefly on two things that I found. And, and one of it, I'm, I'm wondering how it plays into. So I, and again, this was on IMDb. So you got to take stuff with a grain of salt, but according to actress Anitra Ford, and she played the character of Laura, she claims that that apparently there was a French investor hmm. that that was involved in buying the film footage and editing it and eventually involved with the release of it. Huh. Although I don't know though, because you, you know, the fact that there were Texas investors and the fact that, um, and here's a, a fun little tidbit. So maybe that got confused because it's Paris, Texas and Paris is in France. Maybe. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe, (laughs) you know, I don't know. The film did have its world premiere on December 11th, 1974 in Paris, Texas. Now, I lived in Paris for two years. The film premiere was at the Cinema 2 Theater. That was our theater of choice. We lived there 89 to 91. My parents moved uh, to Paris, Texas in 87 and lived there until 94. My dad was with the Chamber of Commerce, so lived there for two years and and they had, I mean, Paris is not a big town. They had two theaters. 
There was the Grand Cinema downtown. It was originally a grand theater that had been turned into a twin. And it was not a theater of choice to go to. They would play new movies during the summer, but then during the fall and winter months, they they were playing movies that were typically six months old, give or take. And it was an old theater. The Cinema 1 and 2 was the nicest of the two theaters. And it was, it was a little two-screen multiplex theater. It had been built in 73, so it was still a, very much a new theater when this movie had its world premiere. It was owned by Cinemark, which I had never heard of Cinemark in 89. I look back now, I'm like, wow, I know who Cinemark is now. So when we moved there, it was Cinemark. It closed in 97. Cinemark built a eight theater complex in Paris. And sadly, almost 25 years later, the, the building is still vacant and nothing went into it. That section of Paris, Texas is kind of, there's just a lot of closed up buildings. You know, one of those areas, sometimes towns have areas that just die. One or two buildings close and everything else closes following it. So the theater still standing, you know, and it, and it's still there and it still has the little, uh, you know, frames outside for the movie posters. It's where I saw Batman and Back to the Future Part 2 and 3 and Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. So anything that we saw 89 to 91 was was going to be at that theater. So I thought that was kind of interesting that out of all the theaters in the world, that's the theater of choice for the the world premiere of Messiah of Evil or whatever title it had when it, it made its premiere. So you talked about like the the development of the script. So Michael Greer plays the lead character of Tom. He was interviewed in 71 and apparently talked about this movie. He said that he was going to play the devil's son. And so Michael Greer plays the character of the stranger in this movie. And apparently there was at one time an implication that the modern character, you know, of Tom was the son of, you know, or somehow related to the the stranger that we see in, in the flashbacks. But that wasn't really implied in the final version. Well, that's interesting you say that because they did mention in the commentary, Michael Greer is the stranger. I didn't understand if they meant in the present day, that's him come back you reincarnated or whatever, or if they just meant that was him playing the stranger in those flashback scenes. I, I kind of had an, a wondering if one of the characters was this evil presence that had come back and hadn't revealed himself yet. He's an, he's an odd kind of charismatic, almost cult-like leader. You, you get that vibe from him. I felt like maybe they had that in their minds at one point but they just didn't write it down on paper and it's not presented that way in the right. story. Again, someone would be sitting here saying, well, this is where the script probably needed to be tightened up a little bit. If you fill in those gaps, right. And there, there's some, there's some gaps of logic or explanation in this movie. I mean, you get tidbits, right. But if you fill in all those gaps, then the movie becomes much more straightforward and the kind of the fever dream presentation style is taken away and all of a sudden, then it becomes something different and maybe to a degree, almost less. Because if you if you had a much more straightforward film presentation, then you're not going to have all those pretentious cinephiles out there saying, well, I see that this is an allegory for the yeah. movie. Because then you wouldn't have that. 
and you would have just a straightforward, low budget, paint by numbers horror film that we probably wouldn't even be talking about today. I think the advantage that this movie has is because it is so almost incomplete in a way that it adds to the overall atmosphere of the film and makes it stand out. Whereas it might've otherwise just been kind of lost in the shuffle with other low budget films. Yeah. You say unfinished. There were actually two scenes and they couldn't remember if they had shot him or not, but they did not make it into the movie. One was when they go into the art gallery and this is just a brilliant touch too. The proprietor at an art gallery is blind. I mean, how absurd is that? I That's just a little detail I love. But anyway, she's trying to find her father and he's an artist. She wonders if they've dealt with any of his art or anything. Well, supposedly the man that was in that art gallery, there was a scene where he was back in the alley behind the store burning all of the father's paintings. So he did, in fact, know the father, but wasn't telling you know the daughter some bad reason that he's burning his paintings. The other one is when the stranger comes out of the water towards the end and walks up to Arietti standing on the beach to, quote, take her as his bride. He supposedly puts his hand on her face and there was an effect where it burns. Then supposedly they kept saying there is a scene later that they did film where you see a hand burned on her face. But the scene of him putting them hit there wasn't in the movie. Well, it turns out her head was like turned the other way. So you don't really see it. But they said, yeah, if if you saw the other side of her face, she's got the burn there. So those are two scenes that they didn't film that were intended. And I I don't think that necessarily helps the plot or the story any, but it's. No, not really. I mean, I guess the scene of the art dealer burning the paintings would have been kind of an interesting scene. So the cast of this is is interesting. So you've got Michael Greer playing the character of Tom. I did a little research on him, and and maybe you did some as well. He kind of an interesting character. He did TV work. His really only other big, big notable film is The Rose. That's, I guess, remembered today. He was a quirky comedian. He did some type of stage thing with being the Mona Lisa. (laughs) I was like trying to read it and understand. I'm like, I don't get it. I'd have to see it. But apparently he was also involved in in some gay exploitation cinema. And so I was trying to figure out, I was like, well, was was he gay? Was that why, you know, or was he just playing parts and and kind of got pulled into that? Because he, he does play a drag queen in one movie by playing some of these characters, he kind of got typecast a little bit. I couldn't quite get, you know, if it did not that it really matters, but I guess it would, it would be maybe a better understanding of where the trajectory of his career was going. And it almost seemed as if he, he regretted taking on some of the gay exploitation roles. He was an odd character in this film. He had had a very odd presence, which Again, if you go with the idea, well, maybe he was the the stranger reincarnated because you don't really see him too well as the as the stranger in the flashback sequence has always had is always kind of low and he's not quite clear in images. So but he plays this this, again, kind of charismatic cult like leader as he's got the two girls, uh, Tony and Laura kind of hanging on him and then clearly 
has a way of, hello, my, my zipper's stuck. Would you unzip me? I was like, first I was like, why is there a zipper on a vest? I was trying to figure that out. Cause like, you have buttons on the front. Why is there a zipper? I'm not up on early 1970s fashion. It was a dark time for fashion. I know that. So apparently zippered vests was a thing. And by the way, they said his white suit was the most expensive thing in the movie. <laughs> I read that as well. Yeah, which, you know, I could I could understand, I guess. I hate to keep interrupting you, but you got to finish that quote when he said about unzipping him. You know, after she does that, She's like the only one not really under his spell, actually yeah. under his spell. I mean, he's got we see him first. He's got two women, you know, and got this some attraction, this appeal, but not to her. And so she unzips his vest and he says, you don't just unzip a man and say goodnight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, you're tired, aren't you? Well, I am, too. Good night. Yeah, it's it's a very weird sequence of events that he died at a young age. He died in 2002 at the age of 59 of lung cancer. Oh gosh. Um, so I'd like to know more about him. You know, I, I'm kind of want to fill in some of the gaps about background and, and uh, kind of curious, curious about him. Now, Arietti was played by Mariana Hill and Star Trek reference second of three in this episode. She played Helen Noel Dr. Helen Noel on a uh, first season Star Trek episode called Dagger of the Mind. She plays this hot assistant who goes down to the planet with Kirk and they had a apparently some type of encounter at a uh, Christmas party, which marked like only the second time in classic Trek that they referred to any type of, of holiday. There's a reference to Thanksgiving and a reference to Christmas in the first season. Through a series of events, Captain Kirk is led to believe that that they had there was more to their rom- you know, that there was a romance, and then he becomes kind of brainwashed and he's all hot for her. Well, so she's wearing one of those, the tunics that the women wore, but clearly they had shrunk it a little bit because her butt is exposed throughout much of most, most of the episode. Very attractive very sexual. She was a really good actress in that episode. You know, she's just very, very beautiful. This coming only four years later, I was taken back a little bit because although she's pretty, she had aged in my mind a little bit more than I would have expected in four years time. And I also, I didn't really get a feel that that her acting was on par in this movie as it was with where she was at on Star Trek. She didn't really come across as a great actress in the movie. She wasn't bad, but I guess I kept comparing her to her Star Trek appearance. And I'm like different characters I get, but I don't know. Her acting was much better in Star Trek than it was here. Now yet she did lots of TV work. She was also around this time period. She was in high plains drifter. She was in the Godfather part two she had this kind of time period where she was certainly, you know, getting some good work. Yeah. It was, it threw me off a little bit. I was, I was, cause I don't really remember her performance the first go around. And so now, and I don't, honestly, I probably didn't even know when I saw this film the first time that she was the same actress. Cause it, you can't really recognize her very much. Now that I knew, I think, when we were watching Star Trek recently, I think Carla wanted to know more about her. And that's when I saw she was in Messiah of Evil. So then I was like, 
when we talked about doing this movie, it's like, okay, I knew right away that I was getting into Star Trek territory. Anyway, the other two actresses in this one, you have Tony and Laura, the groupies, I guess, <laughs> of Tom. We had Anitra Ford played Laura. She didn't do a lot of other work. She had like 22 credits to her name, mostly TV work. Invasion of the B-Girls, which is a movie I've never seen. I've heard it's pretty notoriously bad. Someday I'll, I'll check that film out. So she quit acting in the mid-70s. She became a real estate agent. She's a published poet. And she's an accomplished photographer and artist. Uh, mm. Has had shows out in California. Interesting that the other actress kind of had the same path. Now, I had to kind of laugh at her name. Yeah, I'm <laughs> a 10-year-old here. But her name was Joy Bang. <laughs> That's actually her married name, not a stage name. She was born Joy Wiener. <laughs> so, I mean, I get it. I'm 10 years old, I know, but I'm like, oh my gosh, this poor, poor gal. So she played the character of Tony. So she was born Joy Wiener in 1945 in Kansas City. She married Mr. Bang. That was her married name. She only had 23 credits. She did appear in Pretty Maids All in a Row in 1971, which, of course, credited to Gene Roddenberry. She also quit acting in the mid-70s. She went on to become a nurse and lives in Minnesota. Hmm. Chances are that her name was Weiner, and your dirty little mind is going to a different pronunciation. Just want to throw that out as a possibility. It's spelled W-E-N-E-R. Oh, I apologize. That sounds like Wiener to me. <laughs> now, I suppose it could be Winner. True. You know? Well, there might be two ends if it's Winner. Or maybe there's a, you know, Winner, maybe the French name. I don't know. I do have a little bit on Anitra Ford. Simply, I would not have brought it up, but you brought up shrinking the clothes on Mariana Hill. One of the most bizarre scenes in the commentary comments is that grocery store scene, which I hope we talk about. And that is where Laura Anitra Ford meets her fate. <laughs> There's a scene of her walking down the aisle and Willard Hayek just says, those aren't her boobs. She didn't have any boobs. Those were all the costume designer. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> And she looks ample. I mean, she's a sexy woman, uh, but supposedly not real for whatever so, that's worth. So all the costume designer. Okay. Yeah, sewn into the her sweater, I guess. I don't know. Okay. I, I th when he started that, I thought he was going to say she had had work done or it was silicone or something. But no, it was the costume designer. I'm sure she appreciates him pointing yeah, that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. All right. So the two other big cast members in this one, we have the father. Joseph Lang, played by Royal Dano, well-known character actor, uh, 196 credits. He did lots of TV work. Lots. I remember him from a lot of Westerns back in the day, the Big Valley, Gunsmoke, Rifleman. But he does have um, some legit sci-fi and horror credits. He was in Killer Clowns from Outer Space, uh, an episode of Lights Out in 1949, um, several episodes of the Suspense TV series, Night Gallery. He was in the uh, first episode of Planet of the Apes television series. He was in House 2. He was in Ghoulies 2. So pretty prolific and, and some interesting credits. 
died in 94 at the age of 71 of a heart attack. The other well-known, and again, I would say character actor, uh, Elijah Cook Jr. played Charlie, the town drunk, but not really drunk. He, he seems to uh, give the impression that he plays the part to protect himself from the townspeople. Another Star Trek reference, he played Samuel T. Cogley, attorney at law, in the first star- season Star Trek episode, Court Martial. Uh, over 200 film credits. He was in The Maltese Falcon. Again, some legit horror credits here. He was in Voodoo Island in 57 with uh, Boris Karloff. Of course, The House on Haunted Hill in 59 with Vincent Price. Black Zoo, The Haunted Palace again with Price. He was in Rosemary's Baby. He was in Salem's Lot. Died in 95 at the age of 91 of a stroke. So long, Hmm. long life to him and, and long careers for both of them. And they do add a measure of credibility to the film where you've got some actors and actresses you may not recognize. I'm seeing Royal Dano. His voice is heard throughout the film as she's like reading his diary, but he really only pops up in that one scene. And it's powerful though. He kind of fills in the gaps and he's the one that is the segue into the flashback sequence where we hear about the stranger and find out that it's the stranger was related to the Donner party and somehow survived the Donner party. Of course, if anyone doesn't know their history, uh, the Donner party's infamous story of basically early American West uh, settlers getting, if I recall trapped correctly, they got trapped in bad weather and basically turned into cannibals to survive. Pretty horrific, true story from the American West. So it's implied that this that the stranger is a survivor and basically is, is the start of this weird zombie-like cult, I guess, is, is the best way to describe it. Seeing Royal Dano and, and Elijah Cook, even though Elijah Cook's only in two scenes, uh, it's a quirky scene. He's being interviewed in a hotel by Tom and the two girls, although you don't really understand why he's being interviewed and why he's being taped because they don't really explain that. Do they? Unless I missed it. Uh, I don't recall the details since I had the commentary on, but why was he even there? Because they go to that hotel room and that's where they first meet Tom. And he's there with the two girls. Isn't that when he's there? Yeah. Charlie's giving them this background about the town and this has happened before. And he's afraid to talk about it. Here's your bottle of wine and and have a nice day. You know, then it's revealed. And he has a brief scene where he talks to Arietti and is basically saying, well, I'm not crazy, but I'm, I'm protecting myself. And then we find out a few scenes later that he was found dead behind the building or whatever. And then later on, Tom like turns on the, real to real player. Oh, yeah. hmm. I don't understand like why is he being interviewed? I don't think they explained that. And again, unless it was a casual reference that I missed, I never quite understood that. It made for a creepy scene, not one that necessarily made sense. Yeah. I have to read that whole quote you mentioned it earlier, but it's just so wonderful. I'm as old as the hills. Mama delivered me herself. She took me from between her legs. Bloody little mess. She's about to feed me the chickens. And daddy said, maybe we could use a boy, Lottie. That's how I came into the world. <laughs> I just love it. There are some great 
quotes or lines in this movie. Just some well, of there's the whole sequence with the the weird driver, right? He shows oh, up at gosh. the gas station. Clearly, he's got dead bodies, right, in the back of his truck. And the gas station attendant's really trying to get her to leave because he sees that this is weird. Well, he pops up a couple other times in the film, but he he's driving at one point after Laura has left the house. Okay, idiot girl, do you not watch movies? Yeah, there's a bunch of weird people in the bed of this truck and a weird guy driving. Sure, what the heck? Well, then he's like, you like Wagner, you know, and and, and cranks up the music and whips out a rat and bizarre sequence. And it takes her quite a long time to finally say, I'm going to get out. I, I'm like, I wouldn't have got in the car to begin right. with. Once she's in there, she's kind of going with the flow a little bit. It's like, oh, you're eating. You're, okay, that, that's good. No, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. You know, I think I'm going to get out now. I was like, oh, you think? You think is just his overall look is is really bizarre. I think we see him maybe one or two other times, but he doesn't really speak again after that. That whole sequence was talks about going out to the to the beach and the fires and and you wonder though, it's like, was he ever normal? I kind of get the feeling just from his look that he might not have been one of the sharpest tools in the shed in the town. And and now that everything's kind of turning haywire. He's like taking this role of, I'll be the taxi driver. Bizarre, bizarre sequence. Creepy, creepy as all get out though. Yeah. The two big scenes, I I don't know if we need to go into detail. I think if people haven't seen it, they might get more out of it knowing less about it. But there's one in the grocery store when Laura meets her fate. Very, very creepy. And then the movie theater, which Uh, is just a terrific scene. You know, she goes in. And they talked about in the movie how, like in the 70s, if you're out shopping all day to take a rest, you might just go into a movie theater for a while and sit. So she kind of quoted, you know, escapes by going in there. And there's one person sitting up front. And then it's like the birds, you know, slowly more and more people come and sit. This is where I see some talent from the filmmakers. Well, because, that, that scene, know, yeah, is just we're, great. We're, you know, we're seeing what's on the. We're the seeing what's going on behind her, but she hasn't seen it yet yes, until yeah. the people come. The old man sits on one side, and the old lady sits on another. And then she realizes, I'm not in a good spot. We've been seeing it now. It's like it's like you want to stand up as a girl, get out of there. It is not a good place to be. There's an interesting bit of trivia on that. The trailer that was playing. When they made the movie, they used, and I, I can't find it now, like the trailer they used filming, and it may not necessarily have been the one they would have left in if they had finished the film themselves, but the one they used was like from a musical. It starts with a B. It's not Brigadoon. It's, um, uh, I can't remember. Anyway, that's not what ended up in the movie. What ended up was this Sammy Davis Jr. movie called Gone with the West. That they believe was used because that was another movie that those crazy finance producers from Texas had made and owned. So they had the rights to be able to use that in the movie. So that's why that is the trailer that is showing. And and, and what does it say about this episode that we've had now two Sammy Davis Jr. references? (laughs) What are are the chances? And just I'll add recently on my blog, I did a review of Poor Devil, which was a TV movie in the 70s starring Sammy Davis Jr. So something in the air. Talk about in the air. Yes. There's something else about. Oh, so I I was when I was looking up interesting 
you know, little tidbits about this movie. I, this one caught my eye. It's like, okay, if, if there's any truth to this, again, this is maybe people seeing, maybe reading more into the movie or, you know, again, acknowledging it for, for being something interesting. The British Film Institute, BFI, which is well-known, Back in 2003, they hailed it as a rare work of cinematic genius. Interesting praise coming from the British Film Institute. I'd be curious as to what was their reasoning for that. Were they thinking that this is an allegory for for the Vietnam War and seeing all this stuff that really was never intended, you know, or, or were they seeing it? for the fact that, you know, it was a series of events and the end result is this very interesting cinematic piece. I'd love to know the origins for that quote, if in fact it's real, because that would that would be very telling if they were coming at it from one direction or another. What do you think's a more compelling story, that these two filmmakers had no idea what they're doing, no intention at all, and people are interpreting, or what if it, instead it was like, oh yes, we meant that, and yes, that meant we were burning the flag and commenting against Vietnam. Well, what's the better story that it they succeeded in what they attempted, or that they had no earthly clue what they were doing, and yet people are reading into it? I think it's I think the latter. I think yeah. it's more interesting to I say clearly by their commentary it does kind of sound like they would have mentioned, right? It sounds like this guy would have said, well, yes, you know, I, I was talking to Marty and <laughs> he thought, I think you should do a film about Vietnam. And this is what we came up with. I have a feeling that if that was their intent, he would have gone with that. Or if he thought he could get away with it, he'd have gone with that. The fact that they that they didn't tells me that obviously, you know, I think that's a, that's a better story. It's like, to people that really haven't done much in Hollywood, and they they came up with this movie. When you say, "Okay, what what's three movies that you've done in Hollywood?" <laughs> well, I I did three or four movies. Well, I did American Graffiti, Indiana Jones, Howard the Duck, and Messiah of Evil. I mean, <laughs> I get it. Sometimes people's careers go down crazy paths, but that's a pretty interesting broad spectrum of film. So what does it say about the person that interprets it and finds the meaning? Because does that discount their view of it because it didn't mean anything? I I will tell you, when I first saw it, I didn't know all this stuff. And I thought it was dreamlike. I loved it. It was creepy. I didn't understand. I totally got the atmosphere. I loved it. I wasn't interpreting Vietnam and flag burning and all that. So I got something. It made some impact on me. Yeah. I think it, it would depend on the individual. Yeah. And I know people, right, that through the interwebs that are smarter than I am when it comes to cinema. They, they, they're more well-versed and they will obviously see things in films that, that I don't necessarily see. And I think that's more contributed to the fact that they've seen a really broad spectrum of films and they approach things maybe with a more, with a different approach, different eye, different critical eye. And I'm thinking of, and this is totally positive, but I'm thinking of Joe Barlow. I mean, his, and I, you get that when he did his podcast cinema slave so many years ago, and he wrote a book on movies and just his continued approach to film today is I always, I kind of value his, his opinions. And even though sometimes I'm not on board with, 
all of his his opinions on film. I see him coming from just a, an informed place and, and coming at it with a, with a positive approach. And then I think you've got some other people, and I know these as well, that are just a bit more pretentious, you know, with their way they they will spout off their quote-unquote cinematic knowledge. You know, and that's the interesting thing about cinema. Really does, I feel, and I'm not going to word this correctly, but I feel like I've got a profound thought here. Like, isn't it more about the viewer than it is the makers? I mean, there are hundreds of movies that people interpret and get things that were not intended. So doesn't it say more about the viewer and and what they get out of it? And doesn't that somehow turn around into be sort of, isn't that what movies are all about? How they affect you? What is, how do you connect with them? What do you get from them? I think, I think again, it's how they, how they approach it. I think obviously everyone's going to get something different out of a film. That's the, the joy of movies, right? I mean, you're you're there to to enjoy, and, and your life experiences will play into how you look at at a movie. I mean, case in point, Carla has a more scientific brain than I do, and so she will struggle with some films when science is is challenging. Um, whereas I can dive into those movies, and I'm just like, okay, well, I, I guess I'm looking at it from a different different perspective, and I, I can throw the dumb science knowledge at me. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going with the flow. And even if I know that there's a lack of logic, like we watched Black Hole, the Disney classic a few weeks ago. And I love that movie. Uh, that, that movie, you know, came at a time when Disney wasn't really knocking it out of the park and they were trying to figure out what are they going to do to survive? Clearly there's some things in that movie and that science wise don't make a lot of sense. Some of it is, you know, we're a few decades later, we know more about black holes than we did in 79. But I think that your knowledge going into a movie is going to play into how you perceive things and see things. And I think it's how you handle it and how you approach it. And I think that, you know, sometimes there's this air of superiority with some people when they see a film and there's like, well, I've seen 10,000 films and clearly I'm more well-versed. You know those individuals that just kind of go into it and you're like, you know, all right, bring it down to to normal level because they read things into everything that they see as opposed to those who just, they come in with some knowledge and will their experience is going to vary from one person to the next. I think that's, again, that's the magic of, of cinema. The danger is don't go down that slippery path and try to find something in everything because sometimes that's just not the case. And I think that's, that's where it's like some people will go into it and they're reading stuff into every single thing that they watch. I guess if they got enjoyment from it, then that's fine, but it can become a bit pretentious when you're like, you know what? Sometimes a, a, a dumb guy in a monster suit is exactly what it is. It's a dumb guy in a monster suit. Therefore, an extension of that and of what I've said earlier, couldn't film criticism then be more about the critic than it is about the movie? Because, okay, the pretentious person you're talking about, they've seen all those movies. Well, so when they're critiquing the movie, they're really 
talking about themselves. They're saying, hey, I've seen all these movies and this scene reminded me of that. So that's valid. But then there's also like I saw something and I got a homoerotic subtext out of it. That's more on me and how I interpret it versus the quality of a movie. That can change totally the subtext of, of the scene or film and, and can stray totally from what the filmmakers were intending. I guess at the end of the day, though, it just depends on your enjoyment level and does it deter or does it enhance? And, you know, I think everybody comes at it with a different perspective. As long as nobody's getting hurt, I don't care what, what you think about a, a film scene or whatever. I guess it's just the way in, in, in the, the presentation sometimes. I think it's perfectly fine. Everybody can think what they want to think when they see a movie and everyone has different levels of experience and how I will view a movie will change. You know, if I, the first time I see it to the third time, if I've seen, I don't know, uh, my first time seeing an Akira Kurosawa film and my 10th time seeing one, I'm going to be seeing things that I didn't see the first go around because I've been educated along the way. I, I know a bit more film knowledge and I may know a little bit more about, well, wow, that clearly this was inspired by this movie that I you know, saw that was made 10 years earlier. And that that can add to the overall fun and enjoyment yeah. in, in a movie. And that's um, you. That's your reaction. The movie hasn't changed in that period. No, of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The movie hasn't changed at all. It's just your life experience. Had I never watched any more Akira Kurosawa films, and my opinion would never change. And so I think that's the fun as a filmmaker or a film uh, watcher, not a maker, film watcher, that as you, as you watch these movies, as you view them, and you've got now something you watched when you were 20 years old versus something you watched when you were 50, you're going to be looking at it with a very different lens. Doesn't mean you still can't enjoy it for what it was, but you might also begin to, to see some things that may have been intentional by the filmmakers. The danger is sometimes you're seeing things that maybe really weren't the intent of the filmmaker. And the danger would be as if that can actually deter or change your opinion of a film when in fact, that's not the intent of the filmmakers and, and everyone's experiences is going to, mileage will vary, I guess, <laughs> is what's going with that. Wow. Interesting conversation. We got a little off track there, but see what this movie did. It inspired exactly. all of this conversation. Exactly. You want to wrap it up? You got anything else on Messiah? I don't have anything Google? else. This was, this was a, a very interesting film. Uh, it sounds like the way to go to watch this is the Blu-ray from Code Red, if you can get it at a cheap price. It sounds like that's going to be easily the best print out there. When I checked, it was going for 60 bucks. Mm. So that's the danger these days of, of Blu-ray releases. You got to get in on them when they come out because you run the risk of them being a limited edition, going out of print, film rights changing hands. Um, you know, we've seen that with Shout Factory, all those wonderful Vincent Price sets. You know, uh, our, you know, volume one was re-released, but with some changes to it. I think volumes two and three are now going out of print because I think... Uh, it's not Shaw Factory, but it's like Pino Lorber. Pino Lorber is now getting the rights to the films. You got to got to get in when when the getting's good on these films. But if you can find it, look for it. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, I saw it on Paramount Plus, and it was not a restored version on Paramount Plus. Very much a almost a grindhouse presentation. I'd love to see this movie again uh, with with the print that you you saw it. 
I'd love to own that as well. I mean, I don't own this movie. And, and I think after this viewing, I want to, and I want to own a better print of it. The Paramount Plus print is not bad. It's just what you'd expect from a public domain print. You know, it, it had a few moments where the film, you know, you got the fuzz on the film, you got the, uh, the slight jump, you know, the grindhouse look, which actually fits this movie yeah. perfect as well. Didn't deter from it. But I would love to see a, a really good, crisp, clean print of this, which it sounds like the Blu-ray is the way to go. Depending on what you want to experience and how much you want to spend, you can spend anywhere from zero to 60 on this film. And, and I think your enjoyment will probably be enhanced with a better print, but I think you will enjoy it for free as I watched it as well. Do you want to real quick rank these three? That's going to be, I'll let you go first. Yeah, my, yeah, mine's easy. And I don't know if it's surprising or not. Obviously, Messiah of Evil. When we do our video companion and we do our likes and dislikes, I have zero dislikes of this movie. I really like it. It's number one. Second on my list is actually Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. That's just because it's just so much fun. But I should say these are all up there. These are all fantastic movies. And I put Kingdom of the Spiders third just because there were some little nitpicky things that I was able to pull out of it that I was not able to pull out of the other two. So it's more a process of elimination than it is strongly liking one more than the other, with the exception of the Sight of Evil, because I think that's the best. Yeah, mine's going to be totally different than yours, but I enjoyed all three films as well. My number one would be Kingdom of the Spiders still simply because, you know, I just I love the movie and it's just like a quick, breezy, 90 minute fun flick. And and I've always enjoyed it, maybe a little bit because Shatner's in there, but I've always enjoyed it. Multiple viewings have, have continued to make it the most fun of these three films to watch for me. Number two. Ah, this is tough. I'm going to go with Messiah of Evil because I think through our conversation and, and getting all the background information from you on this, my appreciation for the movies bumped up a little bit. So I'm going to put it as a solid number two. Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla is in third place. Now, it's Godzilla, and I love it. I will say Mechagodzilla has always been a character or creature or monster that's been one of my least favorites in the Godzilla hmm. War. There we go. Yeah, that, that'll be controversial, you know. <laughs> the Sigh of Evil and Kingdom of Ciders, Spiders before Godzilla. Um, I'm sure that somebody out there somewhere is, you know, plotting my death. <laughs> wow, we are sitting in an empty parking lot. People's, or not, parking lot, drive-in, theater, Headlights came on a long time ago. Cars drove off. We better hit the road. This has been such a fun summer going to the drive-in three times, seeing nine mostly fantastic movies. This is I always, can't wait to do it again next year. I was going to say. we will. Absolutely. But let's, let's commit to it. I think, you know, we get good response to this and you and I love doing it. So the summer of 2022, we will be back for our Summer at the Drive-In Part 3. We will uh, check back in uh, once we're on the drive home, finish up with our regular features. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. 
please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Richard, I failed to mention our opening. I do want to point out the song that we had at the beginning of this episode. And if you watch the YouTube companion, you will actually see the video that goes along with it. It is a song. Well, actually, (laughs) I don't know what it is. It's a song, but I think the song might also be this whole thing that is called Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, the musical. There are a whole series of these animated songs on YouTube for each of the Godzilla movies. The animation's great. You'll see that if you if you watch. But it's by Logan Hugeni Clark. You can get them as just songs on Apple Music. I did want to give credit to that song and felt like I had to point that out since I failed to earlier. The other thing I want to point out is that people can leave us feedback if they want to, and we would encourage them to do that. We have a phone number that you could call. It's 616-649-2582, which is 616-649-CLUB. Please do that. You can can call and leave a message, or you could email us a a voicemail at classichorrors.club at gmail.com, or send us a letter. Facebook group page, we have the Classic Horrors Club podcast. A lot of good conversation there and a lot of... Uh, members quote that have joined the club. So lots of ways to interact. And we always think it's better when we have that interaction and get more people involved because it is a club. All right. Our new business for this month, we have a few releases coming out on home video in August and the first part of September. On August 10th, We have FP2 Doesn't Answer from 1932. This is an early, early science fiction film that I watched. There's like three versions that came out all at the same time. One is filmed in German. One's filmed in uh, United States. Very cool, interesting movie. It's coming out from Kino Lorber. I totally recommend it. Not really horror, but definitely thought-provoking early science fiction. August 24th from Arrow, we have a couple movies. First is The Cat of Nine Tales from 1971, directed by Dario Argento. And then Blind Beast from 1969. Do you, are you familiar with this movie? No, I'm not. It vaguely was familiar to me, and then I looked into it, and then I didn't remember it. But I, when I was making my notes, it sounds familiar to me. It's a grotesque portrait of the bizarre relationship between a blind sculptor and his captive muse. And that's ringing a bell for some reason. I don't know why, but I'm going to look further into that and and see if that's worth watching at least. Also on the 24th from Kino Lorber, Guyana, Cult of the Damned from 1979. This is one starring Stuart Whitman. About this time, there were several Jim Jones, Guyana, type movies. There was a TV movie, Powers Booth won an Emmy for that performance. So I just thought I would mention that horrifying true life story. August 31st, 31st from Arrow, The Brotherhood of Satan from 1971. We will mention that again in a minute. I thought that was a terrific movie. And then we mentioned earlier the Kino Lorber Vincent Price movies are all coming out on August 31st and September 7th. Those include Last Man on Earth, Master of the World, The Raven, The Comedy of Terrors, Tomb of Lygia, and Theater of Blood. 
which we talked about last time. Indeed. It's a price is always good. So, you know, one goes out of print, the other one comes in. So if you missed the last go around, I would highly recommend you add all of those to your collection. Vincent Price needs to be in everyone's collection. Definitely. Some birthdays in August and early September. Donnie Dunnigan, August 16th, 1934. I mentioned that just to do a call out to Steve Turek, whose interview with Donnie Dunnigan was nominated for a Rondo Award this year. And his podcast, I don't know, you want to mention your recent experience with this podcast? Well, yeah, I will certainly give it uh, two solid thumbs up. I am perpetually behind on most of my podcasts, but I've been making a real effort recently to try to, to get caught up and, and, and with them. And I've, I've been trying to limit the number of podcasts I have right now so I can get caught up on these shows and then hopefully maybe add a few more to the mix when I'm caught up on everything. So I recently traveled to the uh, northern branch of the Classic Chorus Club podcast clubhouse and uh, visited Jeff up in Minnesota last weekend. And, and that's, a, that's a good solid uh, six and a half hour trip, uh, you know, so 14 hours give or take, you know, uh, round trip. So definitely some good podcast listening time because there's not a whole lot on some of that stretch in, in Iowa. I did a Steve Turk diecast movie podcast marathon both ways and made it through some solid episodes that I, uh, I was kind of going randomly and I didn't get quite caught up. I'm still a couple episodes behind, but some great stuff. Steve has done some amazing interviews over there with people that you don't hear on podcasts or conversations that you don't hear necessarily, you know, talking about different movies. For example, he did a great interview with Ron Perlman and uh, talked mostly about, you know, the non-horror sci-fi output that he did. And, And he had some great stories it was a great conversation. There was a, a great rapport between those two. He also interviewed Linda Joe Miller from uh, King Kong Escapes fame. A great interview. She didn't have a long career and wasn't in a lot. She was also in Green Slime, I think, with a small role in that. Again, a great conversation between the two. He had Jack O'Halloran, who played Non in, in Superman the movie. That was more of a turn on the microphone and let that guy talk. He had some crazy stories, a lot of great stuff. And plus he he had Josh Kennedy on there recently to talk about Napoleon, which is a movie I I really want to see. And the big question is, do I pull the trigger on the region free player so I can get the the current Blu-ray or do I wait for the Netflix version that they're supposedly restoring, which could realistically take several years And will it be up to par with the version that's out there now? Because that version was, you know, had the legendary Kevin Brownlow involved in it. It's got the Carl Davis score. Don't know. Obviously, Kevin Brownlow, I don't believe, will be involved in this restoration. I believe he's still alive, but he's he's quite a bit older these days. Carl Davis, I think, is also still with us, I think but is also not really composing much these days. So obviously, will they go a different route, have a new composer come along? Great conversations. Uh, those are just some of the episodes I, I tuned in. He's got some great stuff. If you haven't checked out that podcast, I, I recommend you do it. Uh, Steve does some great interviews on there and movie reviews. And 
His kids pop in from time to time. So some good stuff happening over at the Diecast Movie Podcast. A couple other birthdays, August 16th of 1933, Gary Clark, one of the two Garys from Monster Bash that year. August 26th, 26th, 1904, Christopher Isherwood. I mentioned him because he co-wrote Frankenstein, The True Story. Shout out to our friend Sam Irvin, who, of course, brought it back into the limelight the last few years. September 6, 1934, Paul Nashi, and September 7th, 1940, Dario Argento. So some big, big names have birthdays. Happy birthday to these people or their spirits, I guess. <laughs> Anniversaries, movies that have come out this time of year in previous years and that we've also done episodes on. August 20th, 1971, Return of Count Yorga was released. Episode 39, we talked about the Count Yorga movies. August 24th, 1970, House of Dark Shadows. We've, of course, talked about Dark Shadows a couple times. August 24th, 1977, guess what? Kingdom of the Spiders. We talked about that in episode Back to the Drive-In Part 2. Which happens to be this episode. <laughs> yes. August 28th, 1947, Lured. Talked about that in the George Zuko's Secret, episode 57. And The Blob, September 12th, 1958. We talked about in episode 44, which, tying everything together, was I Married a Blob at the Drive-In, episode 44, last summer when we went to the Drive-In. Excellent. That's all I got for new business. Did I miss anything that you want to call out? Not that I'm aware of. All right. Then tell us what you're up to. What is up with Richard? Mostly a lot of Harold Lloyd in the last month. I've been trying to play a little bit of catch up. There's been a few crazy weeks at work that I haven't been on top of Harold Lloyd posts. So we're going to be kind of cranking it out here in the next, by the time this episode comes out, next month and a half, we go through the end of September by the time you hear this, we will have probably wrapped up the silent era, and now we're into the sound era. It'll be, I think, a different time period for Harold Lloyd. Been having a lot of fun with that. That's been a lot of fun. He's he's a true comedic genius, and his films are just amazing. Been doing a little bit of horror-related stuff. Again, kind of delayed a little bit, but I, in the month of August, you will see reviews on The House That Dripped Blood and Blood of Dracula's Castle as kind of drive-in extras from our blood theme in July. Because we covered all three movies that were on the drive-in ad for August, there won't be any August leftovers, which is good, since I'm still dealing with the blood leftovers from last month. And I'm back on Dread Media. I, I did a, a recent appearance, a buffet, if you will, of film reviews covering a wide spectrum of stuff that I've seen on Joe Bob um, and saw in the theater with you, like Spiral. Gosh, I'm trying to think of the movies I covered. The Maniac Cop Trilogy, Fried Berry, The Amusement Park from uh, George Romero, Ginger Snaps. I chit-chatted a little bit about Black Widow. It was a good solid 30-minute rambling thoughts on movies, and it was a lot of fun. And so that just inspired me. And so I've got three more reviews coming up soon. On Dread Media. I cranked them out this week in the midst of a crazy week at work. I, I just had an inspiration. So in future weeks, uh, I know on the December, December, 
How about the August 9th episode? <laughs> I will offer up my thoughts on the latest from M. Night Shyamalan, Old, and then uh, forthcoming weeks, The Suicide Squad and Castle of the Creeping Flesh. So those will be coming up in the month of August on Dread Media. Fantastic. Well, since you ask, uh, with me, <laughs> this week saw the release of the latest book from the We Belong Dead group, Hammer. Yay! I posted pictures on that. Another gorgeous, beautiful book. So happy to be part of that. As far as blog goes, still doing 70s TV movies on Fridays at Classic Horrors. Dot club. I'm doing Castle of the Creeping Flesh this week, August 9th. We watched that while you were here, and we'll see uh, how our opinions are similar. I think, we were, I think we were fairly in sync on, on our thoughts on that. That's a, uh, a sneak preview, folks. That's a trippy film from Severn Films, cranked out a great-looking Blu-ray. What an interesting appointment with lust that movie was. <laughs> uh, on Wednesdays at DC Comics Guy, uh, finishing up Man Bat. I've written the last of those. There's a couple more. I know what I'm going to do next. I'm not ready to announce it yet. It's a lot of material, so I haven't quite decided how I'm going to present it, but I think it'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to digging into that. And Richard, I was sort of inspired with you being here and I have already committed to what I'm doing for Countdown to Halloween. I emailed and said, yes, I'm participating. Again, it's way early. I don't want to announce it yet, but at least the decision of what I am going to do has been I made. as well. And I don't I'm have to. committed to it as well. And I have no great. So that's about everything going on with me. Just spending my time anticipating our next episode. Please tell us it's going to be a good one. What are we doing? This is one of those things, and, and if you are uh, following us on Facebook, you will have uh, seen Jeff kind of talk about how the, the process of our September planning went. It was a Jeff watching a movie and texting. Have you seen this movie? You know, conversation, conversation. Well, let's do a podcast, kind of like Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Let's have a show. That's exactly what we did. So we're going to spend September with Satan. And take a look at three uh, Satan films, uh, or Satan-themed films, I guess. Brotherhood of Satan, 1971, starring another great character actor, Strother Martin. The Devil's Reign from 1975, another William Shatner film. Star Trek reference already set in motion. <laughs> what an interesting cast that film has from mm. the likes of... Tom Skerritt and Eddie Albert and Ida Lupino and John Travolta and Ernest Borgnine as Satan himself. What more do you need? Well, how about Race with the Devil, 1975, starring Peter Fonda and Hot Lips herself, Loretta Swit. And Lara Parker from Dark Shadows. Okay, see, Dark Shadows. I, I would have mentioned those in a slightly different order, but yes, okay. they're all three in it. We're going to have a, a satanic September, if you will, is what we've got coming up. Not going to reveal, but Jeff and I had a planning session, and, and we know where we're headed for the rest of the year. And I'm telling you, there's some really good stuff with some bona fide horror legends coming up, really, for the rest of the year. We're, we're, we're pulling out the big names for the rest of the year. It's going to be a lot of, a lot of fun. Yes, definitely. 
that brings us to an end then. We are going to go out with a song called Mecha Godzilla. It's the Hectic Mao remix by Zardonic and Krusha from the album Far Beyond Bass, <laughs> Far Beyond Bass, The Vulgar Remixes. And that is available on Apple Music. We'll go out dancing and, and raving a little. Listen carefully. You can hear, hear Godzilla's roar what? barely above the throbbing disco beat. <laughs> um, thanks to all our guests that met us at the drive-in this summer. And until we meet again, everyone take care. Hang in there. Stay safe. We, along with our, our good friend Satan, will be seeing you in <laughs> September. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. <laughs>